Great Expectations is part of the Earth 2 network of podcasts. Episode 11 X-Men Volume 1, Number 60 through 65 With guests Greg Turner and Steve Raker Hey folks, we're back again with our special guest, Greg Turner, who was with us in the last episode talking Neil Adams X-Men, and he's back to talk more Neil Adams X-Men. This time we're going to be talking issues 60 to 65 of the Roy Thomas Neil Adams run on the X-Men from 1969 to 1969, let's say. Welcome back, gregarious Greg Turner. (laughs) Thank you, Jerry. I appreciate uh, that uh, you invited me back. Well, awesome. I didn't. Sean did. He, okay. He likes you better. Oh, that, that's, that's not true. That's not very nice. It's all right. I just wanted to get you to talk. Um, you know, I'll get there. <laughs> just got to warm up. So where are you? In fact, I think he likes you more than me. Yeah. yeah. All right. It's true. He was afraid to call me because we. Yeah, but you and I have history. Oh, okay. That damn Avengers versus X Men debate. You stole my win. <laughs> I did. There was no. Sti- well, if you want to, it was it rigged. <laughs> It was clearly, uh, you know, an Avengers crowd. Not necessarily. But. I was with you on the X-Men side, for the record, Sean. It was me and you, and your mom was yelling at me the whole time. My mom's time. dead. That's right. It wasn't your mom. Thanks, Jerry. It was Mullen's mom. I got the girls Wait, at the end. As so. soon as I started saying it, I was like, what the hell am I doing? i got to cut all this out now. <coughs> Mullen's mom was yelling at me. Yeah. Your mom would never yell at me. Was his mom there? Mullen's mom? He, she was. Mullen's mom. I am sorry. Do you need a hug? (laughs) (laughs) Alright. I'm sorry. That's why I like Cyclops so much. Orphans for the win. (laughs) I'm just gonna start over. No! You leave that in. You let the people know how you treat me. I'm not leaving any of that in. Yes, you are. I was with you, for the record, on the whole... (laughs) 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 Okay. So yeah, you guys did a whole cool... It was for Avengers vs. X-Men. Is yeah. that still out there? Can that still be viewed? Or they, I, you yeah. know, they um, uh, in another negative against me, Scott, the guy who filmed it, because what Greg and I did was when Avengers vs. X-Men came out, we decided to, uh, in the shop, do a uh, live debate. Turner showed up dressed in a tuxedo as Tony Stark. <laughs> I showed up with a bald friend of mine and wheeled him in in a wheelchair. He was Professor Xavier, and I was a um, plainclothes cyclops with the ruby quartz glasses. And we did a debate on whether or not you should choose Avengers versus X Men. And people brought picket signs, and there was a guy dressed up as Gen- awesome. General Thunderbolt Ross. It was great, <laughs> and uh, they filmed it. But Scott said that the audio only picked up you. That the way that they filmed it, he like. Did you not watch it? I did. It was so dramatic. It was three minutes, and I was like, screw you guys. Well, that's because (laughs) Professor X was using his mental abilities, and those cannot be picked up by a microphone. Sean, you you were shortchanged. I was surprised when I saw that I was so out there, and you, you you could be heard, but 
he wasn't focused. You didn't seem to get the same FaceTime I that know. I as Tony Stark got. It's clearly it an Avengers biased. store. It was. Yeah. And it was. They, I mean, Avengers won. It they, did. They, they, they took the uh, the store. Officially, it was an Avengers store, not an X-Men store. Well, they took the store, but I wouldn't say they took the event. Up top. <laughs> <laughs> I got the gals at the end, so that was okay. Uh, yeah, you did. <laughs> I had two beautiful women kissing my my cheeks for a, a lovely true. photo op, so, you know, I was happy. Good anyway, times. all right, so we're I got here. dirt thrown in my face. <laughs> 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 Part two of the Neil Adams run of X-Men from 1969. Cover dated September. Issue 60. And guys, we're off to a shaky start. Even despite the awesome cover featuring Sauron's backside. <laughs> we're off to a shaky start. In the last issue, uh, Larry Trask was stopped. His sentinels were stopped, flown into the sun. Yep. It was revealed that Larry Trask himself was a mutant and that Bolivar Trask had originally been protecting him because he knew he was a mutant, made him wear this medallion that erased his memory of being a mutant and kept him from being detected as a mutant or exhibiting any mutant powers. And his dad's whole point was to try to avoid mutants from finding out that his son was a mutant and, uh, and outing him. That's what this whole thing was about. What so. A dick. Hey, it was Dad for trying to protect his son. You can't be upset about that. You know what? Dad wouldn't protect their son. I wouldn't not protect my son. I would not. That's a double negative for you. Yeah. I.e., you would protect your. Son. I would protect the hell out of my son. There so you. we. I'd protect your son too. He's my favorite. He's my, he's my best friend now. Yeah, they are. All right, they are. It's so they're so cute. So uh, we're left with this aftermath of a bunch of incapacitated mutants. Pretty much every mutant that we know in the X-Books right now is here in this building. And, um... This mountain. This mountain. This man. This mountain. So, Judge Chalmers' solution to this is that he will release them and he will put the medallion back onto Larry Trask and thus erasing his memory of everything that's happened and putting away his mutant powers again. And the X-Men say, okay, we trust you. That sounds good. See ya. And they fly off with Alex to Dr. Lycos. Yep. To see if he can fix him up. Hoping he can patch up Alex who's just exploded on panel at the end of the last issue. So they drop him off there. Dr. Lycos is very excited to see them. And he suggests that they leave him there because it will be a while and then they should come back Later. Much later. <laughs> Rather suspicious, if you ask me. But In, in kind of a... I, I won't say it harkens back to, because that hasn't happened yet, but uh, when Gene's in the hospital after the whole Phoenix thing, um, Professor X tells everybody to just go off and have a good time and, and don't worry about it. And we see kind of the same thing here, where... Um, <laughs> where are, you Gene, that, are you saying that Xavier had sinister motives? If this is going to be your new thing, wherever no, 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 everything no, no. you, he's not, ever, a, he's dead at this point. They think. I'm just making sure. I don't know if you were throwing I'm, Xavier under the creep bus nope, again. Nope. <laughs> I'm saying that they have a similar response where Gene says, "Scott, your brother's in the hospital, but let's go have a nice drive through the city in this car that Warren Warren's dad just gave him." So they do, but then they return home to the X mansion and they hear a sign, a sound behind a door. And Warren Worthington the third comes from a very Muddied family, right? He does. So what kind of car did they give him? A Maverick. 
Heck yeah. It's a brand new <laughs> Ford Maverick. Not a vet. No. no. Not a Mustang. This is the, the age of the muscle car. A got Maverick. a Maverick. Anyway, sorry. That's definitely an aside. It is. So they go driving away. And then what we see, the rest of the X-Men, are they in the mansion in the danger room? Is that what's that, going on it here? It appears to be the sound that they heard, but Scott forgot that that's where that door leads because he's the leader of the X-Men. So, of course, he'd forget. He's got a lot on his mind. And they walk in into the middle of a training session. Yeah. And uh, it's just the guys in this session, but the girls are watching on, and I'm watching the girls. This is a very lovely panel of Gene and Lorna. Man. Top of page eight. Neil Adams can draw some ladies, guys. Jerry? And girls. Stop drooling on my comic. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. They are very fetching. Two comic crushes on one panel. Oh, yeah. Is it okay if I share her, Sean? Oh, yeah. I guess. (laughs) It's just me and you and Professor X. Oh, you bastard. (laughs) We're going to do a special episode where we track the creepiness of Xavier (laughs) O'Gene. So, anyway, then we get to see those other mutants that are, you know, getting released by Judge Chalmers and et cetera, but they don't really dwell on that. No, they kind of flash, Beast is saying, I wonder how that's playing out, and then they kind of show you. Exactly. And whether it's actually happening or if it's how he's imagining it happen, they don't really tell you. No, we don't really know. But the one thing is that the Toad, Scarlet Witch, and Quicksilver are back in their actual costumes. Yep. So someplace they, they swapped them out again. Then we basically uh, get the uh, the origin of Dr. Lycos. Yes. I mean, it goes on and on. I mean, for a, a bad guy's origin story, we get, what, one, two, three, four, five, six pages? I mean, that's a long origin story. And kind of cool, right? I mean, it, it reads like something out of <laughs> Dr. Strange or one of Marvel's horror titles or something like that. Yes, that's a nice, uh, yeah. nice analogy. And a really cool one. I mean, he's he's uh, a young lad here, and he's with his father um, traveling to Tierra del Fuego, and uh, and they're along on an expedition with uh, some other man and his daughter, and his daughter, exactly, and, uh, who's a very young girl who gets separated from the group in the middle of the mountains, and they all split up to look for her, for them, and Carl finds her being attacked by a bunch of pterodactyls. Pretty cool. Is this where you're going to say Neil can't draw them? No, I think the pterodactyls yeah. re- look really cool. It's they're they're on, awesomely drawn. Uh, yeah. It's awesome. when they get to the Savage Land it's and you see attack. some of the All right. the carnivorous ones. But these pterodactyls are awesome. But uh, Carl fends them off with a giant stick, but not without taking some gnarly wounds himself. Right. Wounds which leave him not himself. But his father manages to save him. But unfortunately, he's... Uh, Become basically what? A, what do you want to call him? A psychic vampire, or for lack of a better, yeah, better yeah. term. Uh, you see him leeching the the life of his little pet dog. Uh, the dog <laughs> manages to stumble away, and he's like, "Hey, I'm feeling great now, but why is my dog limping away?" Type of a situation. So. And his his dog never came near him again. They make the point of saying, <laughs> "Can you blame him?" Uh-huh. Yeah. Dogs remember man's best friend, my foot. Exactly. So you see him, uh, you know. Not being able to control it as he leeches energy from living people now. These are probably bums and other people. And then we see that he's, uh, love at the bottom of page 15, he's actually reading uh, J.R.R. Tolkien's The uh, Fellowship of the Ring. 
novel. <coughs> He's a Lord of the Rings fan. Exactly. I wonder if that'll come into play later. Ooh, think about that for a moment, people. <laughs> so then we, we what do we do? We jump back to the present, and we yep. see Doctor Lycos uh, standing over Alex Summers with over some kind of a gizmo that's sucking the uh, mutant juice right out of Alex. And he's getting so much juice that he transforms. Dr. Lycos transforms himself into some sort of pterodactyl-like creature, though still retaining his mind, apparently. And so he now personifies evil incarnate, so renames himself, dun-dun-dun, Sauron from the master villain of Lord of the Rings. I like how as he's changing, he's like, I can either choose good or I can choose evil. And that panel is just like, fuck it, evil. (laughs) (laughs) No, look at me. (laughs) Yeah, well, you know, it kind of reflects the look that he's assuming. So I guess you can't get too upset that. But yes, and so he just flies off after naming himself or christening himself Sauron. Seriously, a pterodactyl in pants. Awesome. <laughs> Got to lose the pants, though. Well, Marvel got in trouble, didn't they, later on with Howard the Duck because he wasn't wearing pants. All right. So, <laughs> right. you know, Neil knew what he had to do to keep it, you know. I'm sure the comic code was on his back. <laughs> yep. Watching his every move. Yep. Yeah. And it just so happens, then, as the book ends, that uh, the Ooh. angel... Oh, go ahead. First, uh, we see the angel step out of his room in a new costume, guys. All right, so... Thank goodness. Neil Adams is starting to affect some change in this book. Still not the best costume. Still not a great costume. It's now primarily red with only, like, yellow trunks and some extra yellow accessories. The halo is yellow and so forth. And we will see variations of this color scheme appear. And it's always cool when it does. But the best one's still coming. It is. And the last page of this book uh, is a great shot of uh, Sauron in the air and the angel in the air meeting up. And then you get a close-up of uh, Warren's face saying, uh, Your eyes! Your eyes! (laughs) Sauron has dared him to look into his eyes and Warren obliged. I love how when Warren took off, he screamed the avenging angel again. So this is now twice that Warren's done that and gotten himself in trouble after shouting that. (laughs) You see a pattern here, Sean? He should stop calling himself that. But he says a flyboy who used to be called Uh the avenging angel. And does this reference something I'm missing? I don't. He he obviously likes that name because he keeps saying, you know, I used to be called that. He keeps shouting it. He's like that friend of yours that like wants a nickname so bad that they force you to call them by a certain nickname. That's what Warren's doing here. He's like, guys. I used to be called the event. Does anybody remember when I used to be called the Avenging Angel? Just want you guys to know, I used to be the Avenging Angel. Used to be. Used to be. Nobody calls me that anymore. You could if you wanted to, but nobody calls me that anymore. <laughs> well, that ends that issue. 61 picked up with kind of a, a funky splash page. It's yeah. uh, it got a close-up of Sauron's face and eyes. So this probably would have been the what Warren was seeing right. at, yeah. at the end of the last book is why this is this way. So now we, the reader, are staring into the eyes of Sauron. It's really creepy. It, I mean, I think it establishes a really creepy mood right there on the first page. It's kind of unconventional. It is. Uh, and in the same panel, you see, you see the reaction playing out. You see Sauron twice on the panel. 
it's a cool page, but different from anything else he does in this yep. run. Great title, Monsters Also Weep, is the title of that story. And we're going to find out that Carl Lycos has a softer side, even despite being changed into a monster. So Warren, uh, now hypnotized by Sauron, is starting to see monsters where no monsters exist. Yep. And uh, he, after trying to fight them for a minute, realizes that. And uh, engages Sauron himself again. And that's and when we get the two. The this double is, splash page. This is what I think, to me, was the definitive Adams panel. It's got oh, the okay. retelling of... Sauron's origin, it's double page spread where he's got his wings spread out, but the, the panels are actually on his wings. I just thought that was cool. That is a cool panel. It is. No just, denying just it. Because I really like Sauron. We've heard that. I know. And it's okay, Sean. It's okay to like him. Even if he's not really a mutant villain. What a, I mean, how do you guys... How is he classified? <laughs> you know, like, there's, there's always a Marvel, they're always putting people into cubbies you know like what is he he's a dinosaur vampire but is he he's not a mutant is he a mystical creature or a i don't know like when to go i assume know? yeah i don't think it's explained i think it's more like a like a vampire bite or a werewolf bite like he yeah. got the scratch from those pterodactyls. we don't know where those pterodactyls came from <laughs> right That's what we don't know what say. they were playing in yeah. before this stay away from those pterodactyls because you don't know where they're from or where they went <laughs> came from exactly that's right so no i don't you know you want to consider it as a mutant? He wasn't born with a... Unless it was something that we'll already... We'll just make it up right now. You know when your parents tell you not to touch a baby bird because the mom won't like it? Yeah. Carl Legos touched the bird. <laughs> he did. So, we get to, we get to see uh, Angel and Sauron flying above the, uh, the city and battling each other. So, that's always fun. The X-Men arrive on the scene? They do. <clears throat> so, Bobby tries to ice up uh, Sauron. Yeah doesn't quite work out the, the way he planned. But. There are a couple panels here where Sauron's face uh, he kind of undergoes the change back and in transition he reminds me of um, Beak from the Morrison oh. run. <laughs> <laughs> kind of half bird really, not, uh, not reptilian. Yeah, it's got some funky things going on with his skull. It was very elongated now. Mm-hmm. It's much shortened as his transitional phase. Exactly, and you know his ears start turning into hair or something yeah. or whatever. So, it's it's pretty funky. Yeah. So he's thrown down with the X Men, and then he starts to convert back <coughs> to his human form and realizes it. So he makes a run for it uh, and snatches up Angel, who can fly him away. And in the background, we see next to Havoc the phone ringing back at. Lycos's lab, but nobody's picking up. So on the other end, we see a woman's hand slam down a receiver. It could be a guy wearing bracelets. It could be, but come on, those <laughs> those knuckles, those are some feminine knuckles. Okay. Neil Adams knows feminine knuckles, you guys. I, I'm not going to disagree with you, but I'm just saying it. You know, you can't tell. I mean, it could be a guy who's into bangles. I guess. Not that there's anything wrong with it. I, I guess you're right. I guess you're right. Sean <laughs> loved the music reference. But, but, uh, the Bengals weren't around in 69, Sean. <laughs> I know. I, it's clearly Spoilers. a woman's hand. It's okay. a woman. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, uh, Lycos, as he transforms uh, back to himself, still has uh, enough hypnotism powers to ensnare uh, the angel 
once again. The Avenging Angel. The Avenging Angel. <laughs> he used to be the Avenger. And has him fly him back to his laboratory. And once there, he tells him to go away and forget that he flew him back there. And who does he find in the laboratory? The little girl he saved all those years ago, all grown up. All grown up, you guys. <laughs> Comic crush! The lovely Tanya. <laughs> Is there a female comic book character in the world that Jerry does yes. not have a comic crush on? There was on? one. I don't remember who it was. Oh. Who was it? Um, I'm gonna probably guess since you were just just discussing the Morrison run, that no, it was no. probably the Fly Girl from. Oh yeah, <laughs> not so good. But no, it was Misty Knight. Oh, that's right. You mentioned that. It was you Misty Knight. The bionic arm is no good for me. Really, you like Colleen Cold Wing touch. better? Squeeze it right yeah, on. Colleen Wing is awesome. <laughs> I always was drawn to Colleen Wing too. Yeah, and she always got the short shift because I don't know why. Especially Danny from ran. Cyclops. Wow. <laughs> We're going to be talking about that in detail pretty soon, me and you, Sean, because yes. we're coming up on that. We're, that might be next episode, huh? Well, yeah, next episode. Yeah? 118, 119. Hot damn. Yeah. So, um, yeah, there is, getting back to young Tanya here, there is a really nice panel on page 13 of, <laughs> of her. And I just, to, I just want to, you know, not, like, not to drool over her, just to point out. Neil's ability to draw lovely feet. I've now points. figured out that Jerry keeps on saying that the purpose of this podcast is to like go through the X Men books and find out point out what where the other, are. You're the fucking Mister Skin of comic book characters. <laughs> you're like page twelve of issue number sixty one. <laughs> there is one okay. panel. That I'm going to can... cut all of this. Out. <laughs> no, it's, it's page thirteen. <laughs> Neil draws her very well. I mean, Neil came from an advertising background, guys. Yeah, so yeah you can he, see he knew how to draw models and, you know, mm-hmm. selling cars or refrigerators or whatever. So he uses his skills very nicely in drawing the X-Men as well. Especially when he's drawing regular people. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Touche. And, uh, First X-Men was rough. Yeah. I agree. Uh, yeah. We can blame the inker. Let's blame the inker. <laughs> yeah, I wonder if he inked. <laughs> we can blame the know. paper quality. But, uh, Stupid Marvel. <laughs> you see some effort in uh, in ladies' fashion on these. You know, well, okay. just fashion in general, too. I mean, they're not just drawing uh, guys in costume, the same costume every time. You see the characters, when they're out of costume, they're in different clothes every time. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a good point. Jean Grey is uh, kind of wearing a, a nice sh- a striped shift uh-huh. here in this. Yeah. Appearance. So, I mean, these are all things that we just take for granted because that's what people look like. That's but true. he's, no. I mean, Neil Adams is doing that. So kudos to him for that. Right. And during this, you know, they all, so anyway, all the X-Men show up then as well. And the angel is like, you know, having flashbacks. He knows Lycos has had something to do with him because he's shouting, Lycos, no, no, don't let me near him. Or don't let him near me, excuse me. And rather than listen to what he has to say, the beast punches him out and lays him down on the couch where he's unconscious for hours. Well, he was he was about ready to flee and run away, so I guess Hank decided he needed to, to knock some sense into him, so He so got to speak. a healthy scop across the face. Exactly. And meanwhile, as they used to say in comics, we, we see uh, Dr. Lycos actually now... Using his powers on Polaris to once again fuel his change into Sauron. Yep. And before leaving, 
uses the the same power on the sleeping Alex and the poor unconscious warring Worthington third. <laughs> Uh, so now he's got a full charge of vampire pterodactyl going. Energy. <laughs> yep. Yeah. But when he has to face, you know, the the little girl who he loves after all these years, it starts to get to him that maybe being, you know, the ultimate evil being is not all that it's cracked up to be. Yeah, well, he arrives there... Uh, Back at his, I think it's, uh, no, it's at uh, Tanya's father's house, right? right. Uh, With the intent of murdering her father because he's uh, prohibiting her from marrying Lycos because he's beneath her station. Remember that when Chloe gets older. I I will not let them murder me, and they will be beneath her station. (laughs) I don't care if they are a vampire dinosaur, they're not murdering me. So we see him fleeing, flying back to this this cabin where he's going to uh, hide, though it's deserted and it's, you know, iced over, and he builds a fire, and then he it, looks outside, and, you know, guess who's there? <laughs> Tanya, he's he's flown here with the intent of, of letting himself die because of the monster he's become. And uh, he, so he flees her so she can be spared him sucking the life force out of her in his sleep one night or something. So like Warren, who could fly from Egypt back to America, <clears throat> Sauron, Dr. Lycos, flew from America to uh, Terra del Fuego. <laughs> so I don't know how many miles that is, but it seems like a long distance to me. It's almost from pole to pole. Yeah. So anyway, these flying mutants or other creatures have some stamina, obviously. Yeah. Well, he is very tired by the end. Yep. But he's tracked down uh, shortly thereafter by Tanya, and so... uh, He runs away from her. He does. Jumps off a cliff. Jumps off a cliff. Or falls off, or we're not really sure. He's running that direction, and she's like, Look out, you're going toward a cliff! And he continues and goes over, so... Yeah, you know, I was looking at the panel, and I... I mean, this may be reading too much into the, the art, because they could just be indicating he's falling. Right. But um, what they draw is her running toward the cliff, and then you see a hand yeah. reaching. To me, I, you can almost interpret it as reaching back for her, almost like he regrets it. I think you're reading into that yeah. maybe more. But it, it, I mean, it could just drawn. be indicating that he's falling. Right. But uh, I wonder. Him. I wonder. Maybe we'll never know, because he's just plummeted to his death. Well, was she... And this is the end of Carl Lycos. Was she willing to go to her death to follow him? Because it sure looks like in the third to the last panel that she's about ready to go over to. Like the last of the Mohicans, There you go. Bobby uh, whips up another (laughs) ice shield and prevents her from following. That's right. So that ends that issue. So it certainly looks like he's plummeted to his doom. (laughs) Or his dune. Well, maybe he was a. We don't know that he was a Frank Herbert fan. But we know he was a J.R.R. Tolkien fan. We so. do. Well, I mean, he's just a genre fantasy and so sci-fi could, fan. So isn't he, he may very well have read Dune, and he likes fairy tales, as she mentioned earlier. <laughs> so, issue sixty-two now strikes Kazar. And, and we, Steve Raker, I hope you're listening to this half of the episode because we know you wanted to talk about this stuff. So, let it be up to snuff. So it opens, though, uh, with uh, the angel, uh, 
I guess, battling the same uh, pterodactyls or pterodons, however that is pronounced, uh, that Lycos originally uh, experienced as well. So we've got. But some... the last time we saw him, he was unconscious on the couch. How did he get here? Good question. Uh, Apparently, he's woken up and followed the uh, the X Men too. I like Garrett the coloring when he's remembering or yeah, he's about ready to passing a couple pass pages out. of yeah. flashback. Yeah, getting, it looks awesome. There, yeah. He's struck by one of the pterodactyls and he's plunging to his doom. He can't, you know, he's still awake, but he can't quite focus. And he's uh, and all of a sudden, then we shift to a couple of pages. Uh, that's obviously his memories and reactions, um, or reactions to the memories, and it's as, as Sean just pointed out, some kind of psychedelic, weird coloring, kind of nothing is in focus. It's out of it's kind of a neat effect. Yeah, yeah. very. I, cool. I've not seen that previously in comics, but uh, Neil does a, a good good job on those couple of pages, and then you see him basically passed out now, but he somehow falls through, you know, the cavern back into air and then crashes into the ground through some branches and is knocked out. And there's some frog-like creature that finds him. Amphibious. With wings. But he's dead. Warren Worthington III is dead. Rest in peace, Warren. And then out of the forest comes some... Cable-looking guy. Who is this guy? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Is it a mandroid or white-haired guy? With... He's white-haired guy. He's got a. He's packing heat <laughs> on his leg, and he's got some kind of robotic exoskeleton yeah. on his arms and shoulders. Yep. And he's wearing orange, gold. I'd say, or gold. Okay, gold. So, but not anyway. primary color. So I'm no. immediately suspicious. Ah, okay. Hmm. So uh, they find this uh, this dead angel, huh? And they're taking him away. What are yep. they going to do? Well, then the scene shifts and we see uh, the X-Men fighting some sort of a dinosaur creature. Yep. And this is where I was making the comment that... <laughs> you didn't uh, care for his dinosaur I, creatures. I don't think this dinosaur is very strong. <laughs> okay. But um, a lot's changed in the interpretation of dinosaur skeletons since the 60s. <laughs> so this may be cutting edge for its time. Yeah, it's it's kind of reptilian, but uh, it's not a little bit dinosaur, more reptile. So We see Kazar in the background watching this all go down. Yep. He comes out, starts fighting the X-Men. Yeah, he just starts punching people. He punches Bobby, he punches Hank. Well, to his <laughs> defense, Hank punched him first, I think. And then True. He, but he did punch Bobby first. So Hank is ready to get up and punch him some more, and all of a sudden he's got this large saber-toothed tiger <laughs> drooling over his face with his claws on his chest. That's right. Zabu ends fights. Other people start him, but he ends them. Yep. Not a bad first panel. The second panel is a little weak, drawing the, yeah. the saber-toothed tiger. That's maybe not great Neil Adams either. He looks more like a bear there than a, a tiger. But anyway... So, uh, apparently, Kazar is having some sort of battle against these creatures down under. So, if you haven't figured it out by now, the X-Men are in the Savage Land. I don't think we're giving anything away there, you know. <laughs> so, uh, that's the home of Kazar. So, he's uh, fighting these, uh, you know, Cro-Magnon men or whatever. Plus, they've got some kind of mutant creatures leading them or whatever. So, bossing them around or whatever. So, uh, 
the X-Men decide, hey, Kazar needs some help. We're going to help out in this battle. And then the scene shifts again, and we find this silver-haired man in the exoskeleton putting Warren in some sort of cryogenic unit. And uh, he thinks maybe there's a way to save him, that maybe death is not complete. It's like uh, Princess Bride. <laughs> there's just a little bit of life. He's only left. mostly Mostly dead. dead, apparently. Because he puts him in this... Uh, this cryogenic unit, and brings him back to life. But not only brings him back to life, he comes out in another new costume. Which is probably my favorite. Oh, this is my favorite. This is the solid blue all the way up and down with the white stripes down the midsection. And we see a, a red variant of yeah. this from time to time, too, but I like the blue. Me too. I have the I have the red variant toy, but not the blue one. Oh, you what need the blue one. What a bummer. Really? Uh, it's it's a great costume. Obviously, it's a, a Neil Adams designed as well. Um, so we find you know the uh, the other uh, mutants running back, calling this man Master Master or whatever, and that there's you know reporting that there's other people, and then this older gentleman recognizes that that must be the other X Men. Yes. <clears throat> so uh, basically, I think uh, Warren uh, volunteers to. To act as the go-between between this man and the X-Men. <coughs> because obviously he thinks this guy is a good guy because he's just brought him back to life. So the X-Men are out there fighting with Kazar against some other kind of snake-like reptilian creature that's kind of drawn pretty oh, cool. Yeah, this uh, should point this out because this is leading up to a really cool moment, I thought. Um... Kazar says, do you hear that noise? That is the Piper. Yep. And when he makes music, death and destruction are his refrain. And Almost sure military. enough, this serpent comes out of the water and attacks them. Are they related? Possibly. <laughs> but the X-Men do battle and Kazar runs off. What's up with that? But on the next page, which is page 18, 18 we see... A really cool panel where the, this Piper guy is playing his pipe and suddenly disappears through the top of the panel. And you see Kazar holding him by the head with both hands and then from the side and then flip to a close-up of the Piper's face with the entire pan flute jammed in his face. It's still in his mouth and Kazar's thumbs buried in his forehead. And then the next panel covers the bottom third of the page and it goes from side to side and you see the Piper laid out either unconscious but I think dead because it's a savage land. Uh-huh. And The and pipes are broken down there. The pipes are broken. Yeah. The pipes, the pipes <laughs> are broken. And you see Kazar walking away. And it's all silent. Nothing said. No sounds are made. It's just he silently shows up and kills him. And this is the second of uh, Magnet. Oh, I don't want to spoil anything. I think you just did. Well, anyway, so so Kazar strides away, and so this is the... And the other X-Men noticed that the second the music stopped, the reptilian thing went away. Maybe we misjudged Kazar when we got mad at him for running off. Maybe. Exactly. So then the scene shifts again, and, and it's got this, you know, other man and these other mutated creature kind of things... Uh, Jerry was wanting to point out that we'd seen three of them. The amphibious one, we had the guy with the evil eye or whatever, and then we had the Piper. 
So now we see some additional uh, mutates right. at the bottom of page 19. But the real killer to me of this issue is the very last panel reveal. That's when right. you find out who this man in the exoskeleton is. Because you follow him, and he sends Angel off to make peace with the X-Men, and then you see a hand come down on a red and purple helmet. Ooh. Yeah. Sends chills up your spine. This is, so this is the first time that we've ever seen, you're slowly realizing, this is the first time that we've ever seen Magneto without his mask. Exactly, or w- without his costume. Yeah. I mean, you know, he's dressed in, in some odd togs. As Jerry said, toting the gun. That's right. And he says, perhaps it is true what they say. Perhaps clothes do make the man, <laughs> as he reaches for his helmet. That's so awesome. Well said. So it's revealed, for those who follow X-Men history, that these these weird mutant guys are Magneto's mutates. Yeah, he's he's causing them. He's, he's making them. He's taking these... Uh, Cro-Magnon or whatever people from the savage land and exposing them to some kind of machinery and turning them into mutates. Exactly. Trying to create a, a better race of man. Or more evil mutants under his power. <laughs> so that brings us to issue 63. Maybe not the best cover of all the, the ones. I don't know. That one just doesn't do it for me quite as well. I don't know why. But the splash page is nice. We got close-up of Magneto's face using camera. So Neil likes, apparently, the TVs because, you know, here's another example of using, uh, you know, hidden cameras or whatever to broadcast because we see a picture of the angel flying uh, on, a, on a television screen or a viewing screen of some sort. Just mention that because that's like the third or fourth different yeah. uh, appearance of screens in the Neil Adams run. Mm-hmm. And you got his helmet again, you know, on the table behind just to remind you that, indeed, this is Magneto. So we got basically uh, the angel flying back, kind of telling the X-Men uh, after getting punched out by Kazar. Kazar apparently has to punch every one of the X-Men uh, <laughs> to prove his point that he's, you know, the... the, uh, the king big, of the Savage Land. King, king of the Savage Land. I don't this think he is actually a punches Savage Gene, Land, though. guys. I, never, I don't think I ever saw him punch Gene, but I think he's punched every other one. So he's now added the angel to that list. <laughs> well, they're not sure it is Angel as he approaches because, as we mentioned, he's in a different costume. How many flying guys? <laughs> so right. They Are say, there? well, it looks like Angel, but I, well, I'll just punch him. <laughs> Good point, Jerry. So, uh, so he does. He punches him. And uh, before Angel can ask him to slow his roll and, and try to talk some sense into him and bring peace to the situation... All of which excites Magneto because it's buying him the time he needs to complete his plan. Uh, fortunately, Kazar hurries on without listening <laughs> and is attacked by this amphibious mutate guy. Correct. And who brings a bunch of friends along. <laughs> he does. So guess what we get to see? We get a great battle scene on page, what is that, page 7 of Splash of... Kazar and the Beast just wailing on uh, uh, these mutated Cro-Magnon men or whatever. And I think indie guys probably love this kind of stuff more, but the the Marvel fan of me hates this monochromatic coloring because I think all the detail is lost in this page without being fully colored. I mean, great great inks on it, but uh, I think it could have been more if it was, I don't know. It, but it is, it's, you know, a red background with, uh, shades of blue 
coloring the figure work and yeah it's a good painting it reminds me later on in neil's career he did a cover for uh world's finest that uses a similar not coloring but the thing where there's a one hero raising up another guy above his head and another hero i think it's batman and superman i think superman is lifting the guy over his head i think batman is the guy doing the hank mccoy punching here uh-huh. and all these aliens or whatever so very similar uh-huh. to this so he uh he uh you know copied himself i guess whatever you you call that but uh this kind of looks like a page out of savage sword of conan or something to be it honest. could be it could very well be exactly so you got the the angel, you know, saying he's going to make him pay for this. The guy saved my life, but he's trying to turn me into a murderer. You know, I'm going to die trying. So he flies off to find this guy who saved the him. The creator, he's calling The himself. creator, there you go. And that's when he busts in on him, and the guy puts on his helmet and says, don't you know who I really am? Is this about time you learn? I'm Magneto! <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Surprised he could keep the secret that long. Really? And then, you know, they spend a page showing how uh, uh, Magneto had saved himself uh, when he they thought that he had plummeted to his death. In fact, the angel says, hey, I even saw you fall to your death or whatever. And then, you know, he explains how it, you know, really, you know, wasn't his death. He just made it look like it so he could... Operate his secret plan there in the Savage Land, apparently. So, apparently, that's where he saved himself. He was falling, but used his magnetic powers to save himself, and he found himself in the Savage Land. So, he used that opportunity to turn the natives there into his personal mutates. Very cool. Yep. And it's revealed, as the X-Men crash the party, that he's saving, in my opinion, the very best mutate for last. And that is (laughs) Lorelei. (laughs) <laughs> who is drawn in a very Alan Davis-esque manner, I think. she She's got those Alan Davis lips and eyes. That, Alan Davis wasn't drawing I understand that. I, this I, is a Neil Adams. Right, the, the, point, the point I want to... Let me rephrase it. What I want to say is I wouldn't be surprised if this didn't influence Alan Davis's style when he was learning to draw comics <laughs> over in... Marvel and uh, two thousand AD. Yeah, okay. he was drawn Captain Britain back then too, wasn't he? Right. Yeah, I I I see. It, it's a sweet panel. I <laughs> I see. I see. Uh, if uh, I don't know how to put it, that that would satisfy you. But <laughs> it puts me. He doesn't draw women like this normally, but Alan Davis draws a lot of women like this. So it makes me. Think of Alan Davis's art, and Neil Adams probably influenced the well, way he draws women. I think a lot of guys that went on to draw comics were influenced by early Neil Adams. I mean, there's no question that you know we can name off a ton of guys that you know were Neil Adams clones to right. begin with that have slowly you know became their own artists, mm-hmm. and then some that were still stayed kind of in that that milieu. But I'll admit that you know even a guy trying to imitate Neil Adams is sometimes better than. That. Some of the other guys who are doing their own thing. That's sure. again my opinion. <laughs> I love this early age, early uh, Silver Age Neil Adams. That's why I picked the run. Mm-hmm. I mean, I love the artwork in this book. I think it's just great. But beyond that, I mean, it's a great story. Roy, Th- Roy Thomas is writing the heck out of this, and it, yeah. it was Neil influencing some of that, and it was a true partnership. I think it shows these books are really uh, works of love. I think they put a lot of heart and soul into these books, trying mm-hmm. to make it a viable. Uh, comic for Marvel, 
and unfortunately it failed, but we can benefit from it even now going back and rereading these books. They're just great, I think. Well, it failed from a sales perspective, but uh, I think it's important to remember that these still sell in in uh, Masterworks form. I mean, those those sales are probably strong because it's a good story. And these issues are the issues that Claremont looked at when he started writing his run of Uncanny. I mean, these were a heavy influence on him, and he, in turn, influenced everything that came after, after him. him. So, I mean, it's all due to these pages. Yeah. You know? Well, we could quit right here. But we still got a couple of issues, issues to go. Let's talk about them. <laughs> So, anyway, so, so, yeah. this, this issue ends with basically, you know, everything going to heck in a handbasket, or hell in a handbasket if you prefer, uh, <laughs> for Magneto and his complex there basically burns to the ground. And the mutates reverse back to their, uh, savage land population bodies and persona, so, Lorelai is crying and Amphibious turns into just a regular guy and, you know, they're like, well, you know, that's They'll be happier that way. I guess. Scott you know. says. <laughs> they don't want to be mutants like us. Right. Hated and reviled by all of humanity. So, does Lorelai ever make another appearance? In the... She does. I thought yeah. so. She's, I thought I remembered that. I think of all of the, I think they all do, but I think she's the most prominent one. Okay. Um, and don't ask me what issues because I couldn't tell you offhand. Well, I wasn't asking you to name issues, and good. I certainly don't know because I, I said not to. Okay, good. <laughs> so that brings us to issue sixty-four. Yes, which is a non-Neil Adams drawn issue, but it's important because it introduces a new mutant, and that is Sunfire. Sunfire, and one of Sunfire my favorite strikes. costume designs. And I, I can't believe. That this is a Don Heck design. What Maybe it isn't. I don't know. Uh, the, is the cover drawn? Is that a Don Heck cover? I'm not sure. We'd have to probably go on the Grand Comic Book Database or whatever to see yeah, it's who not drew signed, that cover. So I'm thinking there's no way it's Neil Adams. But it looks a little Neil Adams-ish. It does. But, you know, not not great Neil Adams. So the, anyway, so we don't know <laughs> who designed. So, um, so this was drawn by Don Heck. It but, was drawn by Don Heck. But... We don't see Don Heck. Well, it's also drawn, uh, inked by uh, Tom Palmer, which who does uh, just a wonderful job inking Neil Adams. And I think Jerry wants me to, <laughs> to say a certain phrase because I used this earlier. But I tell you, Tom Palmer inks the heck out of this Don Heck pencils. So however That's you want to take that is that he just did an outstanding job or if he literally inked so heavily that you can't see Don Heck underneath this any longer. Don may have just done the layouts or whatever, so there may not be a lot under there. This may be quite a bit Tom Palmer, because it does, if you flip through this, it's not as quite as classy as the Neil Adams drawn book, mm-hmm. but it's not bad artwork at all, uh, and it introduces a kind of a cool character, uh, Japan Sunfire. The first um, splash page is yeah. a great page. It is. And I will say that Heck has grown as an artist since his early mm-hmm. X-Men stuff. And some of the later stuff you see, he's only doing layouts and right. Werner Roth is is finishing over them. Right. Um, so it's not really fair. <laughs> <laughs> that was you. <laughs> Sean was also finishing over them. <laughs> um, so, 
we shouldn't judge him too harshly. Maybe he had these pages in him. I don't know, but uh, yeah, I, I agree that I think Palmer's got a heavy influence on it. So, but it, it's a worthwhile issue. Don't get me wrong. I mean, it's not a Neil Adams issue. I mean, it, it's a step back, but it is uh, the combination Heck and Palmer, uh, or heck of a, a team as well. Not mm-hmm. quite up to par with the Adams Palmer team, but and again, for fans of Sunfire, this is his first appearance. So, yeah. well worth uh, seeking out and purchasing. So, sixty-five, the last of the Neil Adams drawn comic books, X-Men comic books. Um. Actually, Roy Thomas uh, isn't credited at all here. It's credited to Dennis O'Neill as the writer, Neil as the the artist. But Denny has gone on record as saying that really this is pretty much all Neil. You know, he's gotten given credit for it, but he applauded or whatever. But Neil really did uh, do most of the heavy heavy lifting, um, plot wise as well as writing wise, and it, it maybe tells shows a little bit when you get into this. The episode is called Before I'd Be a Slave, and, you know, X-Men make it home to the mansion, and they're, they're met with uh, Alex and uh, Lorna. They're already in costume, saying, hey, there's this problem, and the big reveal in this one, and again, I guess we can talk spoilers because, you know, this was done in 69 right. or 70, not today, is that <laughs> they say, hey, we got something to show you. Come on in. So the X-Men come in, and... Who rolls out of the back room? Professor Xavier. He's alive! Yes, indeed. Apparently, he faked his own death. <gasps> really? <laughs> yes. Back in issue 42. Which So this is two years he's been gone. Exactly. But not dead. You know, they always say there's no one is dead forever in a Marvel comic book. Yeah. And you used to say, except for Bucky. Well, then that isn't true anymore either. So I guess no <laughs> one ever Stacey? stays dead. No, we, cloned Uncle, there, ben. Uncle Ben. Uncle Ben? Uncle Ben. Okay, so now he's our new... He's the only one to stay dead. So no, that didn't happen. You get this whole thing with uh, with Professor Xavier... If I didn't read it. ...explaining <laughs> that uh, he is, in fact, alive, that it was... Um, who was it? The changeling that had uh, assumed his identity so he could go into secret uh, to... S- Basically, he got some indication that there was some aliens coming to take over the world. So he decided he needed to go in secret and spend all of his time coming up with a plan to defeat these soon-to-arrive aliens, or at least two years down the road to arrive aliens. So <laughs> That's change- coming. I don't know when. <laughs> That's right. But we want to be ready. Exactly. And the changeling, to his credit, was dying. He, he was. He was dying. Came and to he Professor said, X. Came to Professor X said, I want to make these last days of my life count. Let, use me. And that's what uh, Professor X decides. You'll assume my identity, lead the X-Men, and I'm going to work in secret on this. So the bottom line is uh, Professor Xavier starts you know, training each of the X-Men individually uh, hard to get them ready for this alien attack. And uh, I don't know, is that the shield? Yeah, uh, I was about to say, is that a helicarrier? Helicarrier yeah, on page helicarrier. nine. Um... <coughs> It pops up out of nowhere. It's been a while since I've read this book, but I'm not sure why it's there. But lo and behold, guess well, what? I think they've been working in concert with Professor, Professor oh, to, to, to fight for the, the alien attack. And then on page 11, we see the aliens actually uh, coming to Earth. And how are, how are they pronounced, Sean? Xenox. Xenox, I think. Z apostrophe N O X. 
There's some creepy looking aliens. Yeah. I think. Ugly, ugly, scaly green dudes. Exactly. Cool fins on the top of their head, though. <laughs> that giant one. Scientists will puzzle for years what the point of those fins are. And look, Neil gets the draw on page uh, 13. Uh, David Brinkley and Chad Huntley again. <laughs> so those are, must have been his favorite uh, must have been. news guys because he's drawn him into the story again. Well, if they're saying it, it must be true. So again, they bring credibility. It's another uh, scene where Neil's using television in the background or a monitor or whatever to show. So there's, yeah. he likes to do that. So we've got the X-Men fighting off the Xenox up in space close by. And what's Xavier's plan? He's going to take everybody in the world and link them together telepathically to provide the needed positive thoughts to use going through himself, Jean Grey, funneling into Alex Summer, who's funneling all of his powers into Scott Summers, who then uses his eye blast to shoot off this beam into space being by powered by children and women in Africa and Indian women and sheiks in Arabia or Saudi Arabia and using that mental power he basically scares off the Zanox and they nice. say my gosh we can't deal with this we gotta turn around and put our tails between our legs and get out of here and it ends with the beast saying amen friends amen so not only were the X-Men instrumental in defeating the Xenox, but all of us were too, as Xavier used our mental powers and channeled them through his X-Men to pull this amazing feat off. Good job, guys. Good and job. that ended the Neil Adams run. And the X-Men managed to get one more issue before they too ended their run the first time. And then they went all reprints for a couple of years. So what do you think? You love those Neil Adams issues? I liked them. I like them. I think they're great. They're some of my favorites. Though I will admit that uh, when Claremont and Byrne hit their stride, those are great issues. But uh, you asked me which ones I wanted to talk about. These are the ones that that I wanted to choose. So thank you for allowing me to come and be a guest on your two programs, actually. That's right. And uh, talk books that I clearly love. If that did not come across, uh, I apologize. If it didn't come across, it's only because it's the third time we've talked about it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that, that is true. I hope we haven't lost too much of our fun and enjoyment uh, as each time we went along. But uh, I was glad that that this third time is the charm. <laughs> it appears to be the charm, charm fellas. But uh, we certainly appreciate you taking the time from your busy schedule. Thank you, Greg. Record with My pleasure. Again. Thank you for having me, gentlemen. So, uh, again, like last episode, can you tell the listeners where they can find your insights into comics? Uh, yes, indeed. Uh, if you would care to hear more or read more about or from me, uh, you can go. It's actually go to backtothepast.com. Um, and on Fridays, I post a column called Retro Reviews that rotates uh, the next Friday with something called Fabulous Finds. And I talk about an individual comic or two from my collection, vast collection of I don't know, I think I've got about 60,000 comics and or a neat uh, collectible that I have collected in my uh, years of uh, comic book collecting uh, from my place, uh, actually from my uh, basement where I've got this stuff stored away 
Or if it's something that I think is totally cool that I don't own, I'll go out and find on the internet and, and talk about it there just because I think it's worthy of uh, today's fans knowing about these kind of collectibles. So, And it's good stuff, people, so go yes. check it out. Awesome. Thanks, guys. All right, that'll do it Thank for you. this segment, but stick around. We're going to be right back with more. Previously on X-Men. Hey, surprise, everybody. We're back for a second segment on this episode. That's right. You should remember this from last time when we did this. But today, you're not going to get just Sean and I. We've brought in a special guest again for part two of this episode. And that special guest is Mr. from Twitter, Steve Raker, co-host of the Marvel Noise podcast, arbiter of knowledge of all that is Marvel. And indie stuff, too, it seems. He's got a podcast, Indie Noise, that you might want to check out. Both part of the... Uh, Deliberate Noise Network. The Deliberate Noise Network. Welcome, Steve, to our humble show. Thanks for having me on. I hope it's the first time of many, because I like to talk X-Men, and I rarely ever do on Marvel Noise, so let's do it. Awesome. And uh, I've, I've mentioned before that I've appeared on your show a couple times, and we've never gotten to speak X-Men. It is dear to my heart and it's all sean ever thinks about so uh, we're is. glad that we can make you happy and you being here makes us happy it so was all i on. thought about until you guys introduced me to taser face <laughs> <laughs> oh taser face is so good but that's not why we're here today we're here because you steve are one of the foremost experts on the x-men as it turns out. And we want your knowledge and we want everyone else to share it. So why don't you tell us how you got into comics, how people can become like you. What did you do that made you such an expert? <laughs> well, I'm on, it pretty much just by still being alive makes me the expert <laughs> and being old. Uh, I was born in 1970, so uh, when all new... Uh, all different X-Men came out was uh, right 1975-ish. So I was five years old, and that happens to be right when I was in full swing of getting into buying comics off the rack. Learned how to read from comics before kindergarten, and uh, even some bad German, thanks to, uh, you know, Stan and Jack's War Comics. All right. <laughs> and uh, my parents had to, had to deal with me. Um, you know, I had you know, probably like a couple of buck allowance, right? But at that point, comics were still only 35 cents, right? So mm -hmm. you could get six comics a week or so and a stick of gum for 250. Um, and the deal my parents had was I, they would also pay for, um, uh, any or any Doctor Strange or Thor, because they both wanted to read those. So those were always added to my pull list. And uh, occasionally my mother would pick up things while we were there at the newsstand and she started picking up Uncanny X-Men. That's awesome. And then got a subscription. So actually, by the time we got into these issues that we're covering, the first one I re remember reading is 108, the first Burn issue. But uh, I had a subscription by this time. So I was a regular monthly reader, and I was in all the way. So I've got the wisdom of someone who was there picking them up off the shelves. That's a beautiful story. <laughs> Thanks, your Mom. mother. Your mother should be thanked every every yeah. Mother's Day, every Christmas. You should be keeping presents upon. Her. She was playing uh, Lego uh, Lego Marvel with uh, her grandkids, my my children, and 
she was yelling at the screen when my other son was being the Iceman. Bobby, come on, Bobby, Bobby, Bobby. And he's looking at her like, why are you calling me Bobby? That's fantastic. Uh, I, 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 I posted on Twitter the other day that I'm so bad at video games, so bad at video games that I went out and actually bought the strategy guide for that game. A children's game. <laughs> did it help? It did. Good. I actually Good. started playing it again last night. I was very excited. <laughs> Excellent. So, Steve, here we are. We are in our reread mode again, and we have come upon issue 114. Yay! Uh, we left off with a cliffhanger at the end of our last episode where we were discussing up to 113 of X-Men. Uh, now uncanny x-men that's right with this 114 it's the first time uncanny's on the cover right i think that's true it doesn't um become official until it's in the indicia like in 142 correct but this is the first uncanny on the cover yep yep the 113 it says now on sale monthly and that is replaced on 114 with the uncanny it's big big doing see this is the kind of expert knowledge you are bringing to us (laughs) They actually had used Uncanny with X-Men as um, in some of the backup features back in the original run when they were doing the little, like, meet the Uncanny X-Men or uh, that business. So the Uncanny adjective had been loosely associated, but not done like this. Oh, done so well. So very well. So, let's see. Where hey, do can we I, begin? Can I just oh. ask you guys, if you guys yeah. covered 113, that's uh, Magneto and the Volcano and all that sort of business. Did you talk about the nanny bot with Storm and her headdress with the lockpicks and everything? We did cover that. Oh, yep. cool. Did you talk about the big reveal with Magneto and how they rode a carnival wagon into a volcano? <laughs> <laughs> we had to. Uh, it was right. the best part, in my opinion. Colossus versus Magneto? Fist to fist? Yeah. You know, uh, I still can't believe that Colossus made that work, and I can't believe that Magneto took that punch the way he did. <laughs> Mad respect to him for that. And, you know, just a, as a fun fact, um, Claremont and Byrne were big on wanting to revisit the Neil Adams, Roy Thomas era of X-Men, as obvious with the variables they put into play. But one of the big things that was important to them about that run with Magneto particularly was that Magneto took off his helmet, and we got to see him look human under there. Mm-hmm. And he sort of looked like he could almost be a good guy in some ways, um, or at least a deeper kind of a character than just the kind of guy who would, you know, leave an atom bomb in his wake. So that's why we got to see the pulling off of the helmet again here and the sweaty-faced, more humanized Magneto uh, doing the battle with Colossus and everything. And that was done for the first time in the Neil Adams stuff, right? Yeah, Where he, yeah. He, okay, so they kind of bring that back and... But the, so that was done intentionally to humanize him. Absolutely. Okay. That's cool. All right. So it sounds like you guys covered things. You had mentioned um, something that I completely missed, and maybe Sean did too, um, with Nightcrawler's uh, right, burgeoning right. invisibility powers. Yeah, it was part of that storyline, but it was in issue 112, the one before it, when, when they infiltrate the uh, you know volcano base and, and Nightcrawler drops down on Magneto from the shadows hidden in machinery above. But Nightcrawler used to have a mutant power that is very rarely um, used in the last few decades, and, and that's his ability to truly turn invisible in the shadows. 
and in one panel they show his eyes and they show his two hands in the foreground, yet they show the clear detail of machinery behind him, through him, through his torso. And he leaps out of that space, so it's not like he was behind it, at least, and especially how careful they were with how they constructed choreographed, you know, action scenes uh, back in, in that day. Everything had, he had to land where it looks like he would have jumped from and all that sort of business. They were sticklers about that stuff. So uh, it was just one of those few examples that we got to see where Nightcrawler really blended into the shadows to the point of actually being intangible. So cool. I, I I miss this. I wish I mean in defense of the writers, they, they weren't writing that because he's been dead for five years. But <laughs> uh, I, I would love to see more of this and I kind of expect it from Aaron. I, I expect him to bring that kind of thing back. We'll by see. The, by the time the Paul Smith was on the book, I think the power was completely um nerfed. Ah. Hey, you can see it. Claremont's got a night crawler on going coming out. That's right. Maybe when we see him next month, we can ask him about it. That's true. Yes. Did I say next month? I meant in two weeks, Sean. Yeah. Oh, man. Demand Nightcrawler to be invisible again. I'm going to clam up again. I'm going to make a note right now. Give me invisible Nightcrawler, Claremont. Don't ask for too much invisible. All the rest will kill him again. <laughs> I can't handle that again. <laughs> All right, so... Tell us, Steve, why this is this is the uh, story arc you picked. Is it just because this is the stuff you read as a kid, or is there something particular about it? It is one of the first multi-part uh, X-Men storylines that I recall reading and revisiting and enjoying, but I'm also a sucker for the Savage Land, and I'm a sucker for Kazar. Um, wonderful stuff, This and this art team, and the elements that were new to the book that uh, and to the characters that ended up being really important to the, building them. Uh, some really interesting things were introduced here. I, there's a, really a lot in these couple of issues as I reread them. Even the first panel, I mean, the book opens with the beast covered in snow carrying Jean. The group has been separated, right? Mm -hmm. uh, they each think each other is dead, and we've got Hank and, and Jean wandering through the Arctic waste and this splash page already there's history here the uh, shooter made burn redraw this page he originally what? he originally had a one of those um a lot of negative space kind of panels to show that they were lost in the middle of nowhere um that burn has used other times and uh -huh. it was a down shot and a little hank and gene wandering with footsteps through this big desolation and wow. uh uh, shooter wanted it to be more of a um, you know Madonna and child uh, pose. So Byrne redrew it, and he says, "If you like it, it's purely by chance because his heart was totally not into it." Wow. Well, I like it. Yeah, that's wow. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I is the uh, the original image available online? You think I could track that down and put that up on our Facebook page? I've never seen it. I, I, I wonder uh, if it's out there somewhere. I'll have to look for that. Okay. Wow. Well, that, I you know I hear these stories all the time. I recently saw on Twitter Starenko posted that um, that classic Incredible Hulk annual number one cover that he did. Uh, the face on that was redrawn. I believe it. Uh, and that was done by um, oh, Wonderkin. Oh, God, thank you. Yeah, it was done by Marie Severin. Uh, and he's still pretty bitter about it, I guess. But 
it's a beautiful cover, but uh, somebody actually posted the original image, and it's much more savage looking. Hmm. Really cool. But I both great covers. But the, another example of, uh, you know, something that was changed, and, and you're shocked that such a great artist would be forced to make a change, but in the end, it produced something great. And they might not like it themselves, but, I mean, I wouldn't wouldn't trade this page for anything. Ditto. <laughs> I'm glad we agree. I like, too, when Hank and Jean uh, make a stir. Uh, Hank finally wakes up Jean, who is unconscious, and, and she blasts the Phoenix Force to see if they can get to the other X-Men that they have to presume are dead and buried at that point, along with Magneto. And it calls the attention of the helicopter. But when she Phoenixes up, it... Um, it restores her costume, which was um, very uh, alluringly um, cut and ripped up in a panel that I stared at and probably was a catalyst for an early puberty for me. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's very torn and very pointy in certain places. But you see, Cause how... it was cold outside, if you know what I mean. <laughs> but you see how it's all fixed after she phoenixes up? Yeah, yeah. Cool. Well, you know, she's had a chance to get her wits about her, I guess. Oh man, these pages are exquisite. So, um, yeah, Hank breaks the news that they are most likely dead, the rest of the team. But on the next page, pow, you see Colossus punch his way out of the rock with the rest of the X-Men behind him. And, uh, they arrive in the Savage Land. Which is such a great splash page. Love it, love it. With the pterodons and, or the pterodactyly things flying and, uh, it's great. And I love how Cyclops has been there before, right? He's like, welcome, gang. I know right where we are. <laughs> that's that's why he's the leader. He's got the experience. And even just thinking about, like, exploration, that one guy who's been there before, so helpful. <laughs> well, I guess having some knowledge is better than having no knowledge. They quickly, um, in a couple of pages, I think, cleverly establish, like, some of the threats and and you know, that are in the savage land just by having some dinosaurs attack and that sort of business and kind of let you know that you're in a, in the wild. Yeah. And uh Banshee's first victim attacked by a pterosaur. And I have to point this out because it's misspelled <sighs> and it breaks my heart as a big dino nut that, that really kills me. But uh it's drawn beautifully and it is gigantic. I can't believe anything that large ever existed on the planet. I'm sure it's a, uh, a Savage Land only special. But yeah, speaking of special, tell that to Rodan. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Colossus mixes up a fastball special for Wolverine, who's thrown into this pterosaur and cuts it to shreds quickly. And this is where we really, I think, first get to see Wolverine actually cutting something living with his claws. Is that right? Yeah, he's happy to be cutting loose. He even says so. Won't and, be the last uh, time in this storyline either. <laughs> So, uh, he comes crashing down with the pterosaur, and, uh, in the meantime, we see a stubbly, half-naked man hiding in the bushes watching, yeah. recognizing Cyclops. Who is this guy? I wonder. Somebody's watching. But hey, forget about that, because Cyclops is mad at Wolverine for yet another time, and how crazy is he for just cutting loose like that when he could have plummeted to his death? He'll get his guys in line eventually. <laughs> <laughs> but in the meantime, I think you're going to see these two go head-to-head -head a lot in these three issues. Yeah. And rightly uh, so. We'll see them contrasted quite a bit, I think, pretty much for the first time repeatedly. So um, here we get a, 
a first glimpse that maybe this is going to be a Wolverine centric story in a way that I never picked up on. But he, he says, you know, group, I think I'm going to like this place. And it really does seem to be the first situation as a team that really plays into his strengths. And the X-Men go and, uh, hook up with the, uh, fall people, uh, that live by the, by the waterfall. <laughs> and, uh, they, uh, get acclimated, you know, get healed up and acclimated. And, uh, we get that awesome storm pose in her, uh, you know, uh, tattered savage land loincloth and stuff. And she asks us if we like them and it's like, like them. I love them. Both of them. Yeah. <laughs> this has become a patented move for Aurora. I think she, she has this kind of, um, we all know I look great. Do I look okay? I gotta ask them, do I look okay? I need confirmation. But it's from this, because this was so, you know, uh, imprinted on my generation's head. Sure. Uh, I was, uh, and Burn to this day says that he didn't know how to draw women back then, and he thinks Storm is way too chunky. What? Oh, no. Crazy, and I think Maybe by today's standards. Now. He draws everybody too skinny now. Yeah, I'd be careful about that one. That is not chunky by any standards, not even today's standards. Yes, be clear. If there are any women listeners out there, we do not think Storm is fat. No, and this she looks awesome. He says that he's surprised that anyone thought that his women back then were so beautiful. And uh, man, if anything, he lost his touch. Didn't find it along those lines. (laughs) Well, I agree one hundred percent. Oh, uh, we go ahead, Sean. Oh, it's just um, one of the pages that we went over um, was Hank and Jean finally showing up at the school, and uh, Lelandra comes out to greet him. And basically, Jean starts to walk away, and the narration is discussing the memories that she's having as she's walking through this place, realizing that the X Men are gone. And um, reading this when I was younger, I know that now going through the reread that a lot of this stuff when I was younger didn't have the impact because I was reading a back issue. So the story had already taken place and I knew that everybody was alive. Even if I read the beginning part of the story, I knew that they were in the savage land. But over the course of the reread, I've tried to um, allow myself um, to try my best to like feel what the characters are feeling and going through and really um, almost dwelling on some things. And the last panel on the page is just Gene kind of kneeling down by uh, Professor Xavier and holding his hand as he starts to cry. And that really got to me this time because I was just like, he, in that moment, like the things that must be going through his head, like I put these kids, like kids, they're kids, and I put them in this position and now they're all dead. And it's this guy that I knew that maybe if I, if we weren't so good of friends back then, I could have stopped him a long time ago. And now these, you know, six or seven people wouldn't be dead because of this. And I don't know, that just really hit me as I was rereading. No, I, I was in the same place as you rereading this, and I had the same reaction. And then I thought, God, I wonder what Sean must be thinking reading this. And then I thought, you know, I think I can almost make out Professor X's boner in that page. Yeah. <laughs> she puts her hand on oh, bastard. <laughs> That's his knees. <laughs> never, sure it is. You're never allowed to talk about Professor Xavier and Gene that way. He loves her, Sean. Just accept it. Those um, those Sean. last three panels, that sequence, uh, Byrne calls that his uh, Bernie Wrightson sequence. He doesn't know how to verbalize how he 
um, used Wrightson as inspiration, but it's the shot, you know, it's the lighting through the window and just how he framed that sequence. They had gotten Claremont and Byrne, um, accolades from Shooter, uh, from the Iron Fist run about a couple of, um, silent sequences. And, uh, they were trying to do that here. Have a, it's an, awesome a, an emotional, wordless panel. I just, I hope, uh, if people decide to revisit these stories after hearing us talk about them, that they'll just take a little bit of time to appreciate what they are. You know, 30 years of comics have gone by since then. And I mean, as you say, this is a rights and homage or approach or whatever you want to call it. But, um, you know, it should really be appreciated for what it is. It's beautiful. I probably didn't appreciate it when I was younger because my eyes wandered to Storm's outfit. Right. Uh. <laughs> I was like, oh, what's going on? Whoa. <laughs> Whoa. Hey, Jean's no slouch yourself, uh, one, nope. walking up the stairs. Oh, man. Nothing like a redhead wearing green. Off the shoulders. Guys, yeah. you know, I never used to be this, this lech with the women. <laughs> I don't know what, what's come over me, but I think it might be Cockerman Burns. I don't talk like <laughs> this on Marvel Noise. I know that. <laughs> you know, I, we, we could have done some wonderful things on Marvel Noise, but I just don't think we could ever <laughs> overcome the urge. The urge. Now, the next sequence is a really important one. It's another one of these ones where Byrne and Claremont had a big disagreement, and they both ended up angry at each other over it. Um, whether it's one of the angers that lasted or not is uh, something to be discussed. But um, we get Cyclops uh, at the water side giving himself a shave, um, and he looks uh, he, he looks wild. He looks like he's should be on the cover of a Scorpions uh, album from the 80s <laughs> with spoons for eyes, um, bent spoons. He, uh, but he's he's got the slim, you know, uh, Ruby Quartz goggles on. That was always a funny look. And with the with the uh, scruff as he's shaven, he looks into the water and he sees the reflection that reminds him of a fella he just met in the previous multi-issue arc. Um, when they were with the Star Jammers. And he's like, I look like Corsair. And then he has a flashback. And Corsair is there. It's the old flashback of him jumping out of the plane with the pa one parachute holding his brother Alex and uh, his parents pushing them out as the plane gets taken away by the uh, Shi'ar. And uh, this is where... He has a chance to make the connection, but doesn't. But it's so in your face that the readers do. Corsair's got to be Scott's and Alex's father. Yeah. Oh, man. Oh, man. Storm so spoils it by walking in. So what was the argument between Claremont and Byrne? Well, the that's the other piece of this sequence. And that is Scott doesn't feel anything for Gene's death. He feels more for Hank having lost his old friend than he does for the woman that he's professed to love all this time. Now, there's two sides to this. Like I said, Burns' story is Claremont didn't script it the way that we discussed it in the plot, and it doesn't match the art, and it makes Scott look like a cad. And what Scott was supposed to be thinking was, I don't feel anything for Gene because I got to say, over the last four months, that isn't Gene anymore. That's Phoenix. And it was supposed to actually show that there was a deeper kind of a love that he doesn't just love Gene's body although there's a lot to go on there <laughs> but it's not Gene anymore and they were supposed to drive that point home that then would be 
obviously reaped with the Dark Phoenix stuff down the line. Mm-hmm. And instead, Claremont went with the Scott has always been alone. He's never seen anybody in love before. He lost his parents early. He's been in an orphanage. He has no frame of reference for love. He then was with the professor. He's never even seen an adult relationship to even be able to base whether his feelings were love or not, which is why he actually questions whether he loved her. But it's part of his trying to um, compartmentalize her death because, again, he lost his parents. Um, He was nine years old and considered brain damaged because of his eyes at the orphanage, so no one was going to adopt him. And then Alex gets adopted, so he loses his brother. And now he's lost the rest of the X-Men and Jean, so it's his way of just pushing it down, according to Claremont. Mm-hmm. Um, and Storm comes in, and uh, in in Claremont's version, her advice was supposed to be motherly, because he, again, has no parental figure to say maybe it wasn't love, maybe whatever. Um, but to burn, this was hacked so horribly and he was furious i kind of got a sight of the burn on this one like a, a, just a little bit i mean i i think that scott's going through some uh stress like possibly post-traumatic stress because of everything that's going so it's like i see both sides of it mm-hmm. because i can understand that genes changed but it did come off kind of um badly yeah and it did to fandom back then too because in 129 when they do the um them the scene of them um you know I always wanted to see your eyes and she holds back his optic blast and they're up on top of that escarpment um mm-hmm. on their little picnic or whatever he spells it out for her and and actually says what was unsaid here which is I was trying to push it down I was afraid of being alone again I had lost my parents lost my brother he actually goes through that whole soliloquy um, mm-hmm. But this wasn't decided until afterwards, after they realized they kind of botched it. Well, you know, I if they they have clearly stated what their positions were on it, that I guess that that settles it. But um, I when I read this a couple weeks ago, and then again last night, I just I felt the same way that he came off really badly, and he's being a complete jerk through this whole story you know he's he's just reacting the wrong way to everything but then like sean said before we recorded today it kind of hit me that this does seem like post-traumatic stress yeah you know and he's he's um he's broken right now he's not in his right mind he's not thinking clearly he's making bad decisions because he's wearing a mustache He's, the, the man's wearing a mustache, for God's sake. I mean, clearly he's not in his right mind. But he, he, reacts, plus, he reacts totally differently in 137 after she dies, right? I mean, yeah. how big is her death then? Right. So it's, yeah. it's interesting. He's more of a boy here, and he's more of a man then. Sure. And I think that plays into his... Because um, when I was rereading this, I was like, man... Because he kept on wanting to leave. And I'm just like, hey, you got to stick around. Like, right. you're a hero. But rereading it, I was kind of like... He wants to get back to the professor so badly because that's really all he has left. He's right. only known Storm and Colossus and Nightcrawler and Logan for like six you know, months. <laughs> yeah, it yeah. is. He doesn't have that big of a bond to him. So probably mm-hmm. the people that he wants to get back to, clearly the professor, is just because he's so lost in this. Right. What yeah. I love and I imagine how- too that like the Savage Land, because he's the only person who's been there before. As yeah. odd as this sounds, it'd probably be a reminder. 
Right. The last time I was here, I was with Hank. I was with Gene. I was with, you know, my family. They're his family. And he yeah. also knows best thing for the group is to get out of there as quick as possible because he's been there before. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what I love is how the very next page they contrast Scott's cold reaction with Wolverine's privately professed love for Gene. And I can't remember, has he, did he, is this the first time we see the picture of her that he's, that he carries around? As far as I can remember, yes. Okay, when I was when I was reading this, I was like, "She dies, so you've probably only got this one picture of her. Why did you crumple it up, you big yeah. jerk?" No, and it survives because he he goes back to it in in later yeah. issues. But I mean, he he's got the picture. He states that he had plans for them. He never told her his real name. Um, it's the first time we get any deepness of Wolverine's character, other than being a surface runt. Um, right. There's something more there. Jerry, what a contrast to Scott. It's awesome. Yeah, I think um this is this is the the story arc that and I think it's really capped off in one sixteen. But this is where Burn gets his wish and it goes from being Nightcrawler series, which is what Claremont wanted, to becoming Wolverine series. Right, and Cockrum as well. Uh, Nightcrawler was Cockrum's favorite too. Right. So uh, definitely, absolutely. Also, one other thing to mention about this scene with uh, with Wolverine with Jeannie's uh, memory here is that um, Colossus comes over, Peter, and he's got the native girls with him, and he's going to go off to the swimming hole, you know, or whatever it is. And I love their establishing. <laughs> These want to show me their special island. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. um, but what is funny is that, in a way, this establishes his character consistent with what he would do later with the Secret Wars when he would fall in love with that indigenous girl there. Hey, and remember how that was such a big I deal with Kitty and all that business? Yeah. You know, I I have no memory of this before rereading it, uh, and it was a shock to me. I always – my mental image of Peter is that he's a really um, reserved – shy kind of guy that would never pull a stunt like this so seeing this is kind of forcing me to reanalyze my impression of him but um so the secret war stuff does yeah it makes a lot more sense to me now but the fact that he he walks off with these two one topless and one possibly topless artists um, have to get their uh, inspiration from somewhere and he was a painter right <laughs> that's right he he was painting some ladies that day. <laughs> oh, my God. That's, that's not where I was going, Jerry. Cut that out, I no. swear. Because no. I thought asking if you think mid-performance he armored up was going to be the worst thing that was said about this, but you just topped that. Wow. Well, I mean, we know he adds that to his repertoire later in the uh, Cable and X-Force book written by Hopeless. Uh, so maybe he learned that earlier on. I don't know. But uh, I was really surprised. Sean pointed me to Uncanny.net saying that it was a really good resource for him to see some stuff. And I was reading some of their articles, and they point out that this um, – what's her name? The character, he mentions her by name at the end of the story, Nereel, mm-hmm. the one girl he, I guess, gets serious with while he's there. She runs into him later, I think maybe in issue 250, and uh, she's got a young boy with her hmm. named Peter. <laughs> <laughs> I 
And I don't know if he connects the dots, but I think the reader is intended to connect the dots. And this boy appears again later in Gen X uh, as Kid Colossus. Which was written by Claremont. Which was written by Claremont. And uh, it looks like he exhibits the same power set as his daddy, Peter Rasputin. So there you go. I mean, I was not... This is like finding out I had a brother that I didn't know about. (laughs) Okay? Yeah. uh, What a shock. And I mean, this is... I know that this is, uh, you know, a two-panel story aside in in a much more important story but um for me and for you know the casual x-men reader that maybe had the same impressions of the characters as, as i did this was like a whole new un, unexpected turn that happens completely off panel last night you were discussing with me via text that you were um, thinking about getting some commissions done of between the raindrops panels in <laughs> X-Men stories. So if you sure. ever get a commission from John Byrne, I would like to know what special happened on, on the special island. island? <laughs> I will look into it for you, Sean. The last scene in the issue catapults us into the next ish, and that is Storm uh, enjoying being in her in Africa-like settings here and uh, resting by the edge of the watering hole. But here comes that guy who was watching from the shadows, and sure enough, it's just who we thought it was. Dun-dun-dun! Sauron, everybody! Yeah. One of my all-time favorite X-Men. I don't, I don't really even consider him that much of a villain, but he's still one of my favorite villains. Would, would you compare him to... Where would you put him? Like Morbius, you know that kind of like he he's he's villainous because of his nature, but he's a good guy inside. Like I I my, he was always the X Men's lizard to me. Yeah, the absolutely. lizard. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Where it was like he seems like a genuinely nice guy who just got dealt a bad hand. Yep. And I was always um, when I was younger, I would always um, go up north with a friend of mine to a cabin in Michigan that his parents had. And I was always obsessed with the Savage Land because we'd always go at that time period where, like, by the house it would be green and grassy, but the further out into the woods you'd get it was, you know, still snowy Mm because we'd go up there, like, right around Easter. And so we would always pretend that was the uh, Savage Land with our toys. So the further out we'd get into the woods, (laughs) the colder it got. So that's my... And is it true, um, I don't know if this is true, but I always heard the rumor that Sauron was created um, as a backlash to the fact that in the horror comics they could no longer create a vampires. Absolutely, mm. yep. Okay, so what's, yep. do you know the story behind that? Uh, that's the story. Um, okay. the, there was Neil Adams uh, and Thomas pushing the code and having a way to have a vampire without it being a vampire. I don't understand how this isn't more people's favorite, one of their favorite. I mean, it's a vampire dinosaur. <laughs> yep. With the power of hypnotism. Yeah. On top of it. Uh, yeah, he's awesome. So the first half of the next issue, 115, like the first nine pages, is the Battle Royale with Sauron. Choreographed like an old fight scene should be choreographed, where you get to see the trading blows, I, everything makes sense and flows and it's not just a bunch of poses where the action is supposed to be understood off panel, you know? I love it. 115 is my all-time favorite X-Men cover. Nice. I love that cover. 
There's a lot to like there. Absolutely. That's the great splash, splash page Logan going after Wolverine. Double page er, spread, yeah. Logan going after Sauron. Yeah, oh, Byrne man. very rarely used double page spreads in, in the X-Men, but uh, here he did because he really wanted to get that horizontal um, you know, motion of Wolverine leaping across uh, you know, and, and making up that space between the group and Sauron and Storm. Uh, but Cyclops, again, he's been there before and he knows this guy. He's like, Wolverine, you're playing right into his hands. And sure enough, Wolverine gets hypnotized and turned back on the team. And it does work out in Cyclops' favor because he gets to unleash on Wolverine with Optic Blast twice, which you know he's really getting into. I was excited about it. <laughs> I love that panel, right? Wolverine's jumping at him and Cyclops in a long horizontal panel blasts him and knocks his whole like head and shoulder girdle straight back. So cool looking. You feel the physics of that, you know? Burns layout's awesome, too. He uses them to great effect. He's got a point that goes over the gutters. He's, you know, the, that long horizontal panel. They do another sweet move, too, where Cyclops is on the ground and Banshee's in the air, and they do, like, the Malachi Crunch on uh, <laughs> on Sauron with, the, with their blast. That was cool. Yeah, Banshee seems to be a really good matchup for Sauron. Like, he's their ace in the hole in this fight, for sure. And it's nice to see him shine a little bit. And talking about turning, um, you know, armoring up uh, in, you know, mid-act, um, <laughs> Sauron tries to uh, soak up, um, you know, Peter's uh, mutant energies and stuff. And... Cyclops has a great idea as he comes upon them and yells to Colossus to change and the uh, very quick burst of uh, powering up kind of shakes Sauron off. And not only that, but snaps him out of his Sauron state. Back to Carl Lycos. Thank God, as Lycos says. (laughs) But Wolverine's still not happy. He wants to ace him once and for all. Fortunately, that's my boy shows up. That is a great panel of him kind of reverting back. Like it reminds, well, like when I was a kid, my um, dad showed me at a very early age when I probably shouldn't have um, American Werewolf in London. Yes, it terrified me. Yeah. My yeah. brother threw up in the theater. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, yeah, it's, I mean that movie seemed like it was going to be a comedy, but well, it because it had off. the CCR Bad Moon Rising in the uh-huh. trailer, my dad thought it was going to be a comedy. And yeah, he was sorely mistaken. Right. <laughs> it was just comedy, comedic enough that I could enjoy it at my age at the time. Yeah, and sure. there was boobies. It was, you know, oh, yeah, I wouldn't see those until Porky's. So Kazar shows up, my guy, one of my all-time favorite characters. I'm a sucker for the Savage Land. I'm a sucker for Kazar and Shanna, and most certainly for Zabu. Steve and I had a great Zabu Kazar talk on an episode of Marvel Noise that I appeared on. Some nice. of the backup stories right. kind of covered their origin of how they met. So I don't remember what episode that was. It was maybe two o three somewhere around there. Yeah, one of the, one of the last six months. <laughs> as a as a real quick aside, um, anyone who is right now currently obsessed with, say, Mark Wade's Daredevil. Um, you should definitely go back. They just put them out in trade maybe last year or two years ago, but they just reprinted in trade um, Mark Wade and Andy Kubert's Kazar, which yeah. ran in like 97 or 98. Right. 
I mean, you get to see Kazar fight Thanos. <laughs> it almost makes sense, too. Although it does. Peter David would retcon it, and then Starlin would retcon it after that. <laughs> so we, with Kazar there, um, now we have allies. We have people uh, who know each other. Um, you know, the fists come down, and we start getting explanation of what's been going on in the Savage Land. And this is when the timing of this comic um, is meaningful because this came out in the fall of 1978 and the previous year Kazar's um, first ongoing that ran 20 issues ended abruptly in the middle of a storyline mm-hmm. and that storyline dealt with um, Zaladane who now I really feel like I should just call Zala because they retconned the Dane part with her being Polaris's sister right? Lorna Dane, Zaladane but anyway, um, so what? What? Yeah, you don't know Zaladane no. and Lorna Dane are sisters, and that's the Dane. Oh my God! Okay, just now here, blew Steve, my mind. Steve, I, I mentioned this in an email yesterday. That, uh, <laughs> I am a host, but I do not claim to be an expert, and uh, I I will not hide from people that there are things I don't know. This is one of them, and. Yeah, my mind is also blown. <laughs> okay, so that's the Dane. Uh, th- that's the Dane. Where is this revealed? I forget where it's revealed. I knew you were going to ask me that, but okay. Well, I'll you can look, look it up. It. You can yeah. look it up. It, it, it's true, folks. I promise you. Um, but this ended the story. This wrapped up all the loose ends of that Kazar storyline, which was there was a war going on with the um, Sheenarians or something like that, which I thought was a joke on Sheena being jungle at the t- right. at the time when I was reading the, the Kazar. Um, and Zaladane and uh, Garak, the Petrified Man, which I covered those, that whole Kazar series, actually, uh, on a recent Marvel Noise, too. You get to see Barry Windsor Smith drawing um, this Petrified Man Garak dude, which is pretty cool. But there was a big war going on, and these interdimensional Shenarians were doing shenanigans in the Savage Land. And uh, <laughs> here we get, in a backstory... Um, from Kazar, what happened after that? So you get a couple of pages to close out that series that Zaladane and, and, uh, Garak sent, um, the Shenarians back to their home dimension. And then they killed the radiologist guy who was trying to cure the, there was a, um, psychotic fever that was going around the Savage Land. And it was because of Claw, you know, the dude with the, with the, um, sound, master of sound. Mm-hmm. His doohickey on his hand was interacting with the vibranium in the Savage Land because it's a different kind of vibranium than, you know, Wakanda. Mm-hmm. And it was making people psychotic for whatever reason. So um, Kazar and a radiologist named Kirk Marston um, went to the Savage Land and he was going to help fix that, the radiation poisoning and all that business. Well, here we get to see what happened with poor Kirk Marston. <laughs> yeah, Saladin thanks a lot. <laughs> sacrifices him and turns him into the new Garak Petrified Man. So there you go, folks. That's why you had me on, right, Jerry? That's so awesome. <laughs> That's why. My only introduction before this to Zaladane was she was like a, a person you had to fight in the first Sega X-Men game. <laughs> <laughs> I never owned that game, so... Oh, it was know. it was a train wreck because your mutant power, you couldn't... Like, every time you used it, it would, like, drain away. Like, you're, yeah. you'd have to sit around. If you were Wolverine, you'd have to hide in a corner if you got beat up. So you could heal. That was actually was pretty this? cool. Back to the Savage Land. Back to the Savage Land. So, so with, with that all explained, that backstory, 
um, we end with what's going on now in the Savage Land, which is that Zaladane and Garak um, oh, are no. trying to unite all the tribes Steve. in the Savage Land to Wait. create. Right, so, <laughs> so what we end with here is the threat to the Savage Land as it currently stands, which is Zaladane and Garak, the Sun God, are trying to unite all the tribes of the Savage Land um, to create a worldwide peace. Um, and if you don't join up, you're slaughtered. So it's that peace through superior firepower. The American way, you guys. So the X-Men, they're going to help, right? It looks like Wolverine and Banshee are down to help. Scott's like, no, we we got to go. <laughs> yeah, he has a sneaking suspicion that if Magneto survived, he's probably going to be looking for, for Professor X, and they need to get home and protect him. And give it to give it up for Kazar. He's like, that's cool. I'll I'll I understand. I'll head you out. I'll I'll leave and take the time out to lead you back to where you need to go and stuff. Well, at least one of them's got their head on straight. Yeah, this is not a good issue for Cyclops. Like I said, I'm going to put it forward the theory again that he's snapped. And yeah. He's not in his right mind. He's just making bad decisions. But I really do think that this probably is in character for him to make a decision like this. And despite that, I, I think he'd probably make that call. He said he'll come back. Right. Yeah. When you're all dead. <laughs> yeah. I'll sweep up your ashes. So they're ready to head home. Right. But then it starts to snow, you guys. It's snowing in the Savage Land. Tropical paradise. That's not good. That's not good. And uh, Kazar tells him so. In fact, what does he say? There is no mere snowstorm for the Savage Land. It is death. Truth. So that leads to another awesome cover on 116. You've got uh, the X-Men tied to a stake, and they're burning, burning, as the petrified man rejoices. Colossus looks hot. He, well, he always does, but he looks particularly hot here. White and, th- and this is another burn cover. I think for most of this next run, as I mentioned before in the last episode, we're going to see almost entirely burn covers at this point. Yeah, burn. it took burn a long time to get um, Shooter's blessing to do co- covers, and uh, he, he had to earn that right. Uh, you'll see a lot of his early issues on... Uh, both Iron Fist and Marvel Team Up and uh, here in the X-Men uh, weren't him. Nope, and I, I feel like we missed an opportunity to talk about that uh, that X-Men appearance on in Iron Fist because that happened sequentially with this. We probably should have covered it at some point. But, probably. Um, I don't know what, how we'll handle that. Maybe we'll just pretend it never happened. No, yeah. we- <laughs> I can try. I can find the issues when I go home, and we can. Yeah, I made a note to to mention that it like it happened. Was it between one hundred eight and one hundred nine? Was like around when that was supposed to have happened. Um, But I don't know if I mentioned it in the episode. You can listen to the Marvel Noise episode where the LA Rabbit and I go over the Iron Fist Marvel Masterworks and cover those issues. Awesome! Yeah, check that out. Guys, seriously, if you are liking what Steve's saying, you are going to get much more of this and much less of me and Sean talking oh, if you go check out Marvel true. Noise. <laughs> they tuned us out the second we didn't know the Zaladane thing. They were like, <laughs> oh, these guys. <laughs> I'm sure a percentage of people are shocked that we wouldn't know that, but I'll bet there are other listeners out there who didn't know either. And they can pretend like they knew, but we're going to be honest about it. How'd you like the splash page of 116 with them it's, climbing up the t- the story title, right? It's Eisner. my favorite title card 
That page is awesome. I love how the so wind's good. blowing the snow off at the top of the, and blowing the hair and everything. It's 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 great and uh, definitely Eisnery. Love it. Byrne says there are only a few times that he could um, do that trick of incorporating the title into the splash page because often the title was decided on last second. But right. here, if you look on the previous issue, they already had the To Save the Savage Land next issue, and that's the the title that stuck. So Byrne had it early enough that he could do something with it. Same that's thing nice. happened for Days of Future Past. All right. And and we got to see it in 114, too, in that redrawn cover. And I wonder if uh, Desolation was drawn into the original cover or if that was something, a trick he was able to pull because of the late redraw demand from Shooter. Hmm. What's on the other side of the snowy mountain? It's Burn architecture, or is it? How, you get a big double page splash of this awesome futuristic city with all this detail on it and everything. Burns says he took a half hour to draw this double page spread and 20 minutes of it was spent on the figures. Wow. How did he pull that off? Terry Austin pulled it off. Aha. Uh-huh. I was going to ask. He did a bunch of little squiggle jiggles. And he had a history of doing this because in the Magneto volcano thing, they show a cutaway of the mountain and the big fortress. Yes. With yeah. We spent some time on that panel, Steve. No, I want you to know, in our episode, we, we gave that it's just due. Uh, you know the story of it, that it was photostatted? He no. Only, he only drew <laughs> half of it, and Xerox did. It's a trick. And ah. and they got caught because Austin accidentally left a piece of Zipatone on it, and it's mirrored on the other side. And in the Masterworks version, which is what I'm looking at, they actually fixed it, but they still... They couldn't fix it all the way. There's still like three dots of Zipatone coming through the zip sheet. It's funny. I'm flipping back to check that. I I mean... That's also 112, I think. I don't... Why would they be criticized for it, though? Just because it's a cheat? It's just... just, Yeah, well, Byrne himself calls it his cheat. Okay. Well, I'm looking... Sean doesn't have the issues. I'm looking at it in the... In the uh, Omnibus edition, so I probably would not... Oh, I do. I see it. Yeah, right there. Right in the negative space that's brown that should be yep. the background. You can see a couple of dots left. On, in okay. the original issues, you can totally see dotted, dotted, dotted. You know, it's just a line of zip tone that didn't get taken off. And wow. uh, and it's mirrored on the other side because it, it's a mirror image of itself. Huh, that's cool. Yeah. Hey, the book wasn't bimonthly anymore. It was a monthly. I got to get it out. <laughs> that's right. As the team approaches, they get hit by the Air Force. And split up yet again. Man. And that's a great panel too, where you can see um, Nightcrawler teleport. Yes. And you can see the teleport in the background, but then he's in the foreground punching one of the the pterosaur riders. Yeah, really cool. I agree. I made a note about that panel too. I just love it. And Wolverine's there for scale, so you see the size of the band. Right. <laughs> uh huh. It's like it's like a mushroom cloud. <laughs> <laughs> But this Air Force takes out the X-Men pretty good. And, um, again, they separate the guys. So now we've got Storm, Wolverine, Nightcrawler, and Zabu uh, remaining and uh, the rest of the gang captured. And here's where they really turn it up for Wolverine, oh, I think. Yeah. Like, this is – we're going to make Wolverine the guy. He has that so moment he, with Zabu. How cool is that? Yeah, he sits down and he's like, look, Zabu, here's what's going to happen. I know you want to storm in there and attack, but we need you to go back to the village and bring help. Just like Rin Tin Tin or something. Timmy's caught in the well. Right. (laughs) 
<laughs> There's a fire at Old Man Johnson's. You gotta go get the fire. <laughs> yeah, and, and Zabu's snarling at first, but he warms up to Wolverine and he does exactly what he asks. And Storm and, and Nightcrawler are pretty impressed. There's more to you than meets the eye, Storm says. And then right from that, you get back to Wolverine, you know, the... Being the best he is at... Yes, and uh, again, a controversial scene that is the first time uh, and the only until he, um, you know, starts slaughtering Hellfire Club guys. Uh, The Mm -hmm. only time we get to see him actually kill a human. Well, we don't actually see it. It happens off panel, but it is very clear what's happening. And, oh, man, this is just great storytelling all around. And it's funny that it's a big disagreement. Um you know, John Byrne left out the snicked, I believe. Um, oh. if, I'm, if I have the side, if I have the sides right, I might have the sides wrong here, but I do have the situation right, which is that the snicked was left out and it was left to be determined whether, um, all right, this is, I do remember how it is. Claremont had it this way, that it was left up to the reader, whether he punched the guy out in some brutal kind of a way or whether it was um, a killing. And Mm -hmm. Claremont's complaint also is that from the plot, what Byrne was supposed to establish in the previous panels, but didn't, is that there was the air support right there. And that there was no opportunity for Nightcrawler to teleport because it would stink and make a visual effect. Storm couldn't do her thing because lightning would have been detected. And that really it was, they had to be stealthy and it was a kill or be killed kind of situation for them. And that wasn't established. And then after the pages left uh, their hands, um, editorial put in the snicked. And uh, so we can thank Roger Stern, I believe, for that. I'm kind of ambivalent about it. I, I mean, I can see arguments both ways, but I think it plays out pretty awesomely on the page. Now, Storm is also considered a hypocrite because she's tolerating that killing where she speaks so against it elsewhere and uh with the dialogue claremont tried to resolve that by her comparing him to a great cat on the veldt she sees him not as a man but as a lion running around and you don't criticize a lion for eating a caribou kind of thing right um so it's weird i again it's one of those things where they didn't quite pull it off but um i think the it was you know wolverine being ruthless uh I'll buy that version. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. And I, I think I kind of appreciate Storm's view of him. Like, I think she, of everybody, I think she gets the earliest understanding of his nature. Yeah. You know, like, tries to, um, instead of being like, why is this guy like this? You know, she says, this is why this guy is like this. You know? Because she, she's um, seeing the contradiction in him. Um, right. Yeah. And and now with this sort of situation, now they've been to war together. You know, they've been to outer space together. They've been to the Savage Land together. By the time they come back from this, there's such a more close-knit group that cares about each other uh, with so much more of their characters revealed, you know? Yeah. Also, talking about things being revealed, on the next page with the um, the dinosaur taking a bite out of Wolverine's arm, it's the first illusion, although it's not clearly stated, to both him having a healing factor and an adamantium skeleton. Right. They've called the claws adamantium, but they've never said that his bones are so unbreakable. 
And he doesn't spell it out quite, but he says that there ain't an animal around that can break his bones. There ain't a beast that's been born that's born. That's right. And that he heals real fast. Real fast. Which is cool. But bad news for the dinosaur. Hmm. Because he pops his claws right into its skull. Sweet panel. Man, that page is great, yeah. There are so many standout moments in this in this arc that I didn't appreciate when I was younger, but now I'm really taking the time to take it all in. <laughs> and then the next page is another just awesome, awesome moment, this time for Nightcrawler, because they come upon the stadium uh, where the Petrified Man is standing on a dace right in the middle. You know, looks like thousands of people are there, and they know there's no way they can get to their friends on that dace with, by just running in. So Wolverine says... Can you teleport that far in one shot? And Nightcrawler, in his head, he's thinking, I've never tried it. The string could leave me weak as a kitten. But in a really awesome illustration of his character, his response is, watch me. Yeah. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't show doubt. He, he knows he might not be able to do it, but he's not going to let that stop him. He's going to... Try to help his friends. The most doubt is when he gets there and he's like, made it. (laughs) (laughs) Right. But he always keeps that to himself. You know, he doesn't let his doubts show to the rest of the team because he, you know, he knows that bravery is important and that being there for his friends is important. I love the second he pulls, um, you know, Cyclops's, uh, you know, muzzle off his eyes. Boom. He blasts Colossus free. So now you got a red hot Colossus running free, ready to tear the roof down. And then he turns and he blasts the muzzle off of, um, Banshee's mouth. Like, like he's Devo whipping a cigarette out of a girl's mouth, you know? (laughs) I just, I just see the speed of that. Just the one, two, the, the, the rip off and the pow, pow. And it's just very cool. It's like they've had this, they've practiced this, you know? That's right. You know, and, Steve, I remember in our discussions of that, uh, the X-Men backups from those Neil Adams issues, uh, we saw a panel where he was practicing right. that narrow, tight beam yeah, through he, he had to hit the, the space. Button. Now, that's right. Why? Editorial didn't know, but see, now you know why that practice was important. <laughs> the precision. But prior to all this, before Nightcrawler shows up on the scene, you see Colossus being burned at the stake. And he is glowing red hot, as Steve mentioned. <laughs> and you've never seen this before. Uh, we will see this play out again in a fight against the Brotherhood of Evil uh, that doesn't turn out quite as good as oh, this right, one does. Right, with Pyro. But, um, but yeah, so now he's red hot and he just starts laying waste to the guards. A cool move, too, is Storm Freeze Cyclops with an over-the-shoulder lightning bolt that blasts the bonds behind him, even though she's in front of him. That's a pretty Whoa. cool shot. Yeah. I didn't pick up on that. Uh, yeah, that perspective is all wrong, but she pulled off the shot somehow. And every time I read this, ever since I was a kid reading this issue, I give myself the same dry joke as I read Cyclops's dialogue at the end as Garrock is running off. He says, uh-oh, the petrified man's making a run for it. Why? I always say, maybe he's <laughs> petrified. <laughs> I can't help it. Oh, Steve. <laughs> Man, that's going to be in my head every time I read this. <laughs> no, it's okay. It's awesome. 
So, uh, so the petrified man does make a break for it and he, uh, runs off, runs up some stairs, a lot of stairs and winds up on top of a dome that seems to be the cause of all this problems in, in the savage land. It's a giant cap over a huge well that's kind of like a, you know, the source of all the heat and, and energy that makes the savage land what it is. Right. And so the petrified man and, and uh, Zaladane have been trapping this energy. And now Garrock's going to channel it with some eye beams at Cyclops. But Cyclops got some eye beams of his own. Yeah, he does. Unfortunately, the the force of these blasts colliding weakens the dome and causes it to collapse. Yeah, down they go, down the thermal shaft to the center of the Earth. Sean, are you okay? I know this is what does it for me. <laughs> Sinkhole, Sinkhole Sean. man. <laughs> so uh, Cyclops and and uh, Petrified Man are plummeting, and Banshee comes to Cyclops's rescue, pulling him from the shaft. And you see Storm swoop past. Reaching, reaching for the petrified man. But she's hit, hit in the back with a, a boulder that breaks her concentration. She suddenly realizes where she is deep in a hole in the ground, a dark, dark hole in the ground. And she's fighting her two big moral issues, right? She can't stand being in the confined space, but she also, you know, puts so much, um, to every life, right? That every yeah. life has so much worth that she's, she's, fighting that contradiction and life is winning out over her fear until she gets wailed. And uh, I think that's either more than she can take or she's just run out of time. She can't reach him. But she doesn't continue her pursuit. She comes back to the surface just as a giant explosion comes up through the shaft. That's right. In issue 150, when we next see Magneto, we find out that Magneto saved the petrified man. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Spoilers, though. Spoilers. <laughs> you while before you get to 150, right? It's going to be a long time, yeah. <laughs> Especially at the rate we're going. <laughs> I think the issues will come out faster than we'll get to them. I just say, cry not for the petrified man. Cry more, cry not more for, for any Marston. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Uh, psychology does not pay. I think that's the lesson. So you had another Wolverine moment here too, Jerry. Yeah, I wanted to touch on that because, uh, um, I mean, I don't want to trample over Steve, but uh, I think after she comes out, she lands some distance from the rest of the group, and uh, Sean finds it peculiar that uh, – Sean Cassidy, I should say, not Sean, our pal Pigeon. I was say, just let him say it. <laughs> So, Let Sean speak. Let Banshee, <laughs> Banshee thinks it's weird that she lands so far away yeah. and says he's, he smiles, you know, thinking of his friend and he says, I'm going to go over there and see if there's anything wrong. But, uh, Wolverine has put together what, what Storm must be facing in her mind. Think about it, Sean. She went down that hole to save a life and she came back empty handed. Whatever happened down there, I figure, it's something she'd rather work out on her own. And and then just a great panel of, of her with them in silhouette behind her staring off into space, kind of contemplating what's just happened. And, and instead of that nice oval storm face, her cheeks are pulled in like she's got suction, like she's gritting her teeth and she's, you know, it's the most gaunt you ever see storm look when Burn draws her. It, it cannot be overstated how good the art Yeah how good the storytelling that John Byrne is doing. I mean, the words are good, but the storytelling in the art is matching the words. You know, it's just, 
he is at the top of the industry here. And it, and it's, they, people say it's overstated how great these issues are. They are not, it's not overstated. Just think about, the, look at these pages! I know, and then on the, ah. fi- the final page when they are making their escape, you get to see Terry Austin doing some beautiful, what he does with some of the zipatone on Storm, in the, in the storm, uh, <laughs> and in the background as, as Lycos and, and Cyclops are shaking hands and even the way he's shading Cyclops's visor, so much goes into it and it really is, it comes off as just clear, straightforward storytelling. So I guess it, it never occurred to me that the Zipatone would be done by the inker. I don't know why, but, uh, so, so that's definitely Austin then. Well, he's the last one to touch the art, and you got to do right. the little chemical and and yeah. wipe the little sheet, and then pull it up um, to leave the, the the mark. So I I would doubt that it would have been burned, but we right. certainly know that he explores with Zipatone in his inking days later on, like with Namor and stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, hey, when you talked about um, Wolverine and Storm, I think you're right. They both have learned something about each other through this majorly right they they're they're understanding a little bit about what's under each of their otherwise uh undeveloped shells that have been presented character wise so far for either of them right yeah and uh the note that i wrote at at the end of that page was that uh with that little sequence with wolverine i think a star was born yeah i mean he was definitely a fan favorite but i for some people but i think that that really establishes him as the guy that that really understands what's at stake. Yeah, between that and the Zabu moment, and I mean, there were a couple of really great, the Gene moment, he's had a couple of really great moments in this, and and, uh, you're right, this is the first time we're getting to see something more. And I think I mentioned it in in the last episode that it was really Byrne that wanted to feature Wolverine more because Claremont wanted to kind of, he his plans was to off him when he was working with Cockrum, I believe. And uh, Byrne said, no way. <laughs> so I would guess that it was Byrne that was really pushing this direction for Wolverine. Well, even when Wolverine became popular, Claremont still didn't have that much intrinsically invested in the character. When even It wasn't until that Wolverine miniseries with Frank Miller. And the, the story goes, from Claremont at least, that um, Miller and Claremont are stuck in traffic uh, to or from a con. And they... He says, you know, you want to do a Wolverine story? And Miller's like, why? He's so shallow and one-dimensional, and what's the point? And because they were stuck in traffic, they started talking about the Japanese samurai stuff that they were both into at the time, and um, boom, out came that miniseries. So I, I don't know how much Claremont brought to the character, you know, from within, rather than playing upon the excitement of some of the collaborators that he worked with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which, that's why it's a collaboration, collaborative medium, you know? <laughs> and it's important to keep that in mind as you read it. Well, that brings us to the end of 116. And uh, I know this is torture for Sean because he is dying to talk about 117. <laughs> Seriously. Because, yeah, oh, man, that is a cool issue, too. That's probably one of my favorite single issues of X-Men ever. You guys are going to have trouble getting rid of me. You're going to go on Skype the next time, and I'm still going to be there, not having hung up, ready to go again. Well, I mean, we can talk about that. I mean, maybe we want to bring you back for that. I don't know what we're going to do yet. But uh, if you 
if you want to come back for the next one, I think I think we could probably work that out. <laughs> Always keep me in mind. Excellent. So, um, any parting thoughts on on this uh, Savage Land story arc before we wrap things up, guys? I think we did it justice. Yeah, I think it. You know, it's definitely. I know that we talked a little bit about this before. That some of this stuff. When I first, um, a few years ago, I reread from Giant Size to the Present, and um, I feel like this is the first time, I don't know if this makes any sense, but I feel like the process of doing this along with the podcast is almost in a way teaching me to um, relearn how to read comics. Hmm. Um, I didn't have any older brothers or anything that got me into comics, so it was kind of just my thing, and I think the time period that I got into comics, as much as I like it because I have a nostalgia attachment to the early 90s Mm -hmm. um, X-Men stories. I know that a lot of it was Flash and, you know, they didn't care that if they were inside of, you know, Doctor Strange's house, if a window was circular, but in another panel it was square, who cares, you know? (laughs) And there's something about going back and reading these and really kind of taking the time to not pick it apart in a negative way, but almost appreciate the little things. Mm Mm-hmm. That's making me really like enjoy stories. Like I never liked the Shadow King, but now that issue I think is just one of the whole psychic battle between Xavier and and Farouk. You know, they're sitting there just I don't know. We'll talk about it in the next issue, and you're more than welcome to talk about it too, Steve. Um, just the scene of them sitting and and when Farouk collapses, just mm-hmm. I don't know what they were doing was far more impressive now that I'm older and able to appreciate it a bit more. So I really hope that through this process, like other people start to go back and give these comics a chance and don't just burn through them. Like really, Oh, puns. <laughs> burn off uh, through them. <laughs> yeah. Just really appreciate what was going on and how much this, particularly this book shapes a lot of what we're reading nowadays. Agree. 100%. And I will recommend again that you pick up the Uncanny X-Men Omnibus Volume 1 and pre-order Volume 2, which is coming out sometime this spring. Or the Masterworks. The Masterworks are out in hardcover and softcover, so you can get, you know, with the discounts, you can get the softcover versions for like, you know, 15, 16, 17 bucks, and you get the the updated coloring, and uh, it's just nice and crisp, and... Uh, there's several, vol- uh, four volumes maybe, or five volumes out in soft cover already of the masterworks of this run. So, um, there's no excuse. There's a lot of ways to ingest it. Find one and do it. <laughs> All right, folks. So, uh, I guess that wraps up another episode. We'll be back next time though with more reread and to be determined. I'm not really sure what Probably we're going to do Steve. next time. Probably talk to Steve again. <laughs> well, thank you for doing this. Thanks for having yes, me Steve. on, guys. Thank Definitely you. let's do it again. And they say the first thing and the last thing are the only thing people remember. So let my last thing be, if you have not checked out the Marvel Noise podcast, please do so. It is awesome. as it, Just a great resource for getting all your Marvel history. Oh, yeah, I'm going to go back and listen to the Kazar episode and find those 20 issues. <laughs> all right, so that's it for us. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Whoa, 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 whoa. Jerry, hold the music. Forget about 117. You guys do that another time. I got an idea. What about I'm um, doing the other Roy Thomas, Neil Adams, X-Men 
a la Claremont Burn riff where they did the X-Men monolith in Marvel Team-Up. Well, that would be interesting to talk about. It'll be like our own little backup tale. Ooh, a tale to astonish. I like it. And you know the ones that I mean, right? It's Marvel Team-Up 69 and 70, or during the glory years, I think, of Marvel Team-Up. It's Claremont Burn again. All right. They have this reprinted, too, in a uh, trade um, in 2011, Spider-Man Marvel Team-Up, for those of you who want to check it out. There are Ricardo Villamonte inks on the first issue, 69, and then Tony DeZuniga uh, inks on issue 70. That appears to be John Byrne's boy right there, DeZuniga. He, I just really? I saw on his forum that he, he mentioned that he's a guy who inks the way he would ink. I don't know what that means, but um, I, th- huh. I personally I think he's crazy. I think Austin looks a lot better. <laughs> uh, I, I really like Tony DeZuniga over the years, uh, especially with the Conan stuff. But um, sure. you know his faces can be really rough. Sometimes it almost seems like the cheeks are transparent, and you're looking through. You know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. that little bit of that cadaver face stuff that, uh, that especially likes. over Burn. <laughs> I don't know. You shouldn't like it. I don't know. But it works here because it's not quite as heavy-handed as I typically see Dzunaga, at least to my eye. Well, as long as we're on the subject, I should also mention that Byrne calls this 70 his favorite issue of Marvel Team-Up that he worked on. Really? There you go. So worth talking about, at least from that perspective. Yeah, like I said, I think this is my favorite era of Marvel Team-Up. So let's get into it. Tell me what happened, Steve. (laughs) <laughs> well, what we've got is Alex and Lorna, um, you know, Havoc and Polaris basically chilling on Muir Isle. They're recuperating after their encounter with the um, Uncanny X-Men kind of around issue 100. Mm-hmm. But there are uh, techno-pharaoh mob in the <laughs> hiding in the wings, and they are attacked. Oh, man, this is terrible. They are fully prepared to handle Havoc. Although Havoc's using his powers pretty well, right? I mean, yeah, he he, he uh, but he get. Oops, sorry. He, no, I'm just gonna say he gets boloed, you know, <laughs> special boloed, special boloed, special boloed. Yeah, they. This is some kind of high tech bolo that neutralizes his powers. These pharaohs are like flying around on Kirby vehicles and throwing around special bolos. <laughs> But they capture him and leave Lorna for dead, drowned like in a soggy orange turtleneck. Uh, and it's got Havoc pretty distraught. He even <laughs> surrenders, offering that he won't cause any trouble if they just let him help her. And they say, no, we ain't got time for that. But this is Marvel team-up, right? So how do you get Spider-Man um, crowbarred into this story? Well, as it turns out, he's hanging at good old Empire State University, working hard like a college student does. And he hears a noise. And it's the Techno Pharaohs. They are um, stealing some onk um, from ESU, some other uh, professor's office or something like that. And they get the, uh, you know, they take off on Peter, but he gets a tracer on on the uh, flying vehicle, at least. I love this move, too. He uses, like, the the rubber band slingshot with his webbing and uh, just flings the, the tracker right onto their Kirby ship. Right, right from his fingers. <laughs> Since he's otherwise incapacitated from his own webs. That's right. So here we see a past 
crossover that we've already discussed as well as a feed into a future crossover. So this ties into the Uncanny X-Men number 111 story that we discussed previously on another show where uh, the Beast ends up at uh, the circus looking for the X-Men. And uh, it will also tie into future issues of Power Man and Iron Fist, which I think we're going to discuss today too, if you're up to it. Sure. I'm up for anything, as you can tell by now. <laughs> You're in hour number three. Right. <laughs> Lorna is calling Hank at the Avengers Mansion. He runs off to join the team. And now we've got Spidey chasing after the Pharaohs, and he spots them and the boloed Havoc and frees them. So now they do battle. Yeah, Havoc's out for revenge now. And they're doing really well until the living Pharaoh shows up. But Alex is no kid anymore, like back in the Thomas Adams days, he said. That's right. And it's going well again until he gets onked from behind. <sighs> he never saw it coming. Now he's been both boloed and onked in the same day. <laughs> These would have made great onomatopoeias, but they didn't really take advantage of it. So what does the Pharaoh do? We're, we're riffing on Thomas Adams, right? It's the old battery scenario, so... Um, back in the sarcophagus, you know, battery charger thing. And uh, it's time for uh, the living pharaoh to power up. And power up he does, and he's big as a house. No, bigger. What I really like is some fine work from Villamonte that I guess he really took some time to do a little extra craft here. It reminds me of his inks, talking about Dezunaga on Conan. Um, same thing with Villamonte. I love some of his work inking uh, Busema uh, and et al. Uh, on Conan. But the, pa the panels of Spider-Man showing up from the shadows, um, coming down on the pharaohs there, the inks and the shadowing are really cool and and pre-Frank Miller-esque, you know? Yeah, I agree. Not too feathery like Villamonte can be, um, but really, really cool stuff. And like you said, we've got the living pharaoh back, and that's the, the uh, or the living monolith now, and that is the, the break between the issues. Issue 70 has a John Byrne cover. Issue 69 had a Dave Cockrum one. And I love this cover because I have from the old 1982 black and white uh, Marvel team-up uh, portfolio back when they did those like five to seven plate black and white portfolios in the day. I have a really cool related uh, plate that is done by Bill Sienkiewicz and Tom Palmer of the kind of recreating this cover. He's got Thor and Spidey in his grip. <laughs> yeah, that is a cool image. I'll be sure to put that on our Facebook page. When I post the rest of the images for the issue, the episode. So the monolith is running rampant through New York here. Never good. <laughs> Poor New York. Never stood a chance with these superheroes around. Spider-Man gets swatted away, um, but caught by Thor, intercepted, and uh, Thor engages. You know, you can't have a big um, walking monolith around without someone in an Avengers mansion noticing. Uh, but Thor gets swatted away, too, and even comments that the monolith's power rivals Thanos's. Uh, Spider-Man in the resulting Keystone Cop moment gets like an unintended ride on Mjolnir. <laughs> this is awesome. And I love Thor's line. He says, Spider-Man, methinks thy knack for the arts of war doth rival that of my comrade Volstagg. <laughs> See, I take that as a compliment because Volstagg is one of my favorites. Now, here's one for you, Jerry. I... 
you know, Claremont and Byrne are famous for their little cameo um, of friends and putting people's names and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Wh- who's Harley and Sissy? Some They drop the name a couple of times of these two people who are just, like, running from the rubble. Is it just um, a riff on, like, Sissy bars on a Harley Davidson bike? Oh, that's possible. I I didn't pick up on that one at all. I mean, I've I've noticed in the past when when they've done that, and I've tried to piece together who it is, but that one just went right over my head. Yeah, I mean, because the sissy is spelled it, they spell it more like it's like a Chrissy sissy. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, you know, I was thinking sissy handlebars, Harley Davidson, maybe. I don't know. Anyway, Thor um, is kind of outmatched on the streets here with the living monolith. So he has to hit him from behind with Molnir and sends him into the New York Harbor, which immediately endangers sailors on a boat as the monolith throws a boat at Thor. <laughs> it's a slick move. Uh, and this uh, talk about uh, riffing on Neil Adams, this double page spread of Thor hammering the flying boat into smithereens. I hope the sailors all got out. Um, then there are, you know, angular panels in the foreground over the top of that, and that is Neil Adams right, right. there, 101. Yep. We get uh, Thor unleashing the elemental power of the Thunder God on the living monolith, now that he's got him in the war. But the living monolith is pretty much holding his own. Thor is even cries zounds out. Zounds. You know what that's short for? Zounds? Uh, you know where that... The ideology of Christ's that? wounds is that right? Close, God's, God's wounds. wounds. Yeah. Right. yeah, God's wounds. Yeah, there you go. So, meanwhile, uh, Spider-Man has headed back to Havoc, figuring out that getting him out of that crystal sarcophagus or whatever it is is the the key to depowering the monolith. Um, but it's booby trap. Booby trap. That's right. And here he does a slick trick with his spider sense. Sure does. Uh, trying to piece together which button is the right button to hit to release the lock. And it works. You figure the danger of the whole situation has to be firing off a certain amount of, like, base level spidey sense, too. So he's got to look for these little, you know, um, spikes, you know, as he's reaching for the wrong <laughs> wires and right. stuff. Very cool. So they free Havoc. Oh, he has to de-onk he's de-onked, him too. right? <laughs> yep. <laughs> so that's cutting off the monolith's power source. So what happens to the monolith? Uh, he shrinks back down to his baby diaper, I think. No, we don't even know. He, like, completely vanishes. You, my God, you're right. The monolith hath vanished. Yep, I'm sure he's not beaten forever, though. No, he'll be back. Power Man Iron Fist, number 57, after the time that Claremont and Byrne touched on this title, um, which was homage to their kind of uh, helping transition their uh, time on Iron Fist's title into <laughs> Power Man so they could combine. But I love the Bob Layton cover on uh, this issue where the monolith is holding the X-Men and Power Man and Iron Fist in his Kirby crackling grip. You know, to me, this looks like a Micronauts cover. Sure does. <laughs> and that's why I love it. Yeah. It might be X-Men Micronauts, sure. too, because, uh, you know, it, it looks like Professor X's, you know, Conquistador psi armor a little bit, mm-hmm. you know, with that brim. But this issue is written by Mary Jo Duffy with art by Trevor Von Eden and Frank Springer inks. 
and it is from 1979. Uh, Power Man and Iron Fist were hired to uh, guard over some uh, Egyptian artifacts in a museum, and turns out they get stolen, and it is the old Professor Abdul guy, and he becomes the monolith yet again. But how is that possible, Jerry? Well, uh, just as an aside, this is the same collection that they were robbing when Spider-Man walked in. Uh, they were, over time, replacing the relics with fakes. And uh, he'd hired Power Man and Iron Fist as uh, the guys to take the fall when, when it was eventually discovered that they had been yeah. stolen. So um, he has stolen an artifact that's some little crystal pyramid and uh and is somehow triangulating three bodies of the professors he was working with to uh channel the power back into him so he can become the monolith again. Did I get that right? So there's no havoc? No havoc. Havoc was last seen in the Defenders. <laughs> yeah, finally a living monolith story that doesn't involve havoc. Yeah. But he still has to be mentioned because there's so He was barely in that Defender story too. That was the um, one with all the heroes competing. Right. You know? Crazy. Yeah, they mentioned that, uh, I forget who it was, but somebody told, Havoc told them that this whole Iron back, Fist. Iron, okay, told Iron Fist he was in those story, issues. so I went back to look at those. I was like, I don't remember that. Yeah, never. That's where they never happened on right. Page. That's where they met, though. Yeah. Yep, but they were both in that storyline where there was too many heroes. That kind of a thing. Right. So don't bother going back to read that for the backstory if you're really concerned about all these people. But Iron Fist is the link. He knows the X Men and he knows the Monolith from this other situation. So. Uh, with Havoc. So he uh, helps to bridge the gap between the Daughters of the Dragon and Power Man Iron Fist cast and the X-Men, who all of a sudden see the monolith pop up and are wondering, uh-oh, what happened to Havoc? Well, it all is explained by the time things are done, and there's still the monolith to deal with, I'm afraid. Well, do, deal with him they do, using teamwork. They, uh, they manage to break up the... Um the, the three-professor triangle that's been set up to channel the power, and that weakens them enough that they can step in and finish business. Which was cool, because it made it a street-level story, right? Because you've got Power, power Man and Iron Fist now running around town, basically doing detective work, um, breaking up the triangularity of the, of the power source. So I thought that was a really neat way to make it a Power Man and Iron Fist story, even though um, the X-Men are fighting... You know, this living monolith. Right. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> to be sure that it doesn't happen again, they uh, smash this crystal pyramid that the monolith had been using. <laughs> Iron Man says, gone, without a trace. I wonder if we'll ever know what it really was. And I just thought, wouldn't it have been smart to find out before you smashed it? But that's yep. just me. I don't know. It was a, It was a cosmic cube. Was it a cosmic cube? No, <laughs> it might have been. It We're never been. gonna know. You don't go just smashing cosmic cubes, is what I'm saying. Well, you do if you're Iron <laughs> Fist, I guess. But it worked out. If your hand can become unto a thing of iron, that's right. <laughs> oh, worth noting that the hey. X Men are palling around with uh, their friend Colleen Wing. She and Cyclops are standing side by side most of the issue. Yep, and they were pals with Misty as well, who had joined them. Um, you know, in their the title, issues Claremont we'll be discussing always next. likes getting his hands on it. In fact, all right, it all comes around. That's right. <laughs> also, you know, it's funny. I also came across this Living Pharaoh Havoc bit 
on the Avengers Alliance um, game that I'm playing through my iPad on the iOS version at least just had a special ops like limited um, series of missions that you could go on and everything dealt with Egyptian kinds of um, uh, artifacts that you could get and the ultimate goal after you defeated the living monolith and uh, the living pharaoh uh, was you earned the Havoc character oh that's really cool and, uh, yeah so now I got Havoc on my Man, squad. Man, they're going deep into the well on these stories. That's awesome. Do yeah, you get the neat. power of the Ankh? I do have an Ankh <laughs> uh, item, but uh, it's not quite as powerful as I oh. would like. It takes it takes power away from an enemy that uses uh-huh. energy and gives power to an ally that has energy. That sounds right. So it's kind of like a power suck kind of a thing, but... You only get a few slots for weapons, so you have to carefully choose just your favoriteest, most useful one, so it doesn't make the cut. But a fun strategy game, if you haven't checked that out already. It's one of those turn, turn-based turn um, strategy-type level-up games. Awesome. All right, Steve, should we release the people from their bondage? Release the hounds! <laughs> All right, folks, we'll see you next time. Thanks, Jerry. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Sean. Get down!
he was literally invisible in the sha- shadows. It was yeah. a burn thing. Claremont wasn't as into it. Hmm. I, I really, really dug it. No, 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 no. Uh, yeah, Cockrum, right. Yeah, because he did it in uh, Sean's castle. Because Cockrum's favorite dude was Nightcrawler. Right. That's what Byrne always said, that he changed the series from it being not a Nightcrawler as the coolest character to Wolverine being the coolest character when he took over the book. And I guess I, I just read recently that Len Wein originally intended Colossus to be the star of the book. Really? Yeah, I guess, uh, who was it? It was uh, Cockrum, maybe, in an interview, was saying that um, Ween was always a big fan of the brawlers. You know, the big strong types of huh. Hulk and whatever. So, yeah. so he was in love with Colossus. And I guess Colossus, or, I should be saving this, but Colossus was originally created as a Superboy and Legion of Superheroes yeah. character. Or, yeah. Uh, and Storm so was from the Legion, and so was Nightcrawler, and they they were all they were all rejected Legion character designs. I much. didn't hear about that. Yeah, I mean, look at I mean, doesn't Storm doesn't those holes on Storm's top of her boots look right out of the Legion? Yeah, they do. You know, and and the the uh, you know the ring connecting the the bikini thing. I mean, that's right at that's practically Saturn Girl, right, right there. You know. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I I, I don't read Legion, so yeah, me neither. Uh, I wouldn't make those connections, but uh, once you say it, it's really obvious. I read some of the old, you know, the mid-70s stuff just when I was reading everything. It happened to be the uh, early uh, Mike Grell stuff, so I got a good little taste of Legion then. But by the time I was all marvel like the one DC book that... I mean, there were two DC books that were safe to read, Suppose you know, it was the New Teen Titans or Legion. And uh, sure. I uh, definitely jumped into New Teen Titans, but uh, didn't didn't do so on the Legion. Mm-hmm. Wow. See, Sean, this is why Steve is here. The guy is right? he's old. a master. The guy's old. 